You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Côté des enfants qui jouent aux soldats, et de l'autre des soldats qui jouent comme des enfants. Alors, messieurs, par quoi désirez-vous commencer Poulet froid, pâté de foie gras aux truffes du Périgord ou macro mariné du Capitaine Cook hmm Arrêtez les copains On a repris d'où au monde Et c'est eux-mêmes qui l'annoncent Côte de tennis à jouer au tennis Un camp de prisonniers, ça s'est assez Je suis désolé de vous voir ici. Ce qui passe, mon vieux, c'est pas la musique, c'est pas les instruments. C'est le bruit des pas. You understand that if you do not obey my order now, I'll have to shoot. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Ken Stanley. Hello, Mike. Merci and Donko Shane for having me back. Also with this this week, also with us this week is Mr. Tom Jennings. Thank you very much for having me, Mike. I'm truly honored. This week we are discussing Jean Renoir's 1937 film *La Grande Illusion*, set during World War One. The film stars Jean Gabin as Lieutenant Marshall, an airman who, along with Captain Baudelieu, are shot down by Captain Rothenstein, who is played by Eric von Stroheim. The two Frenchmen spend most of their time in the rest of the film in POW camps, primarily the camps of Halsbach and Wintersborn, where they meet an array of fellow prisoners. Now we're going to be getting to spoilers about this 80 year old film so if you don't want anything ruined for you just go ahead turn off the podcast and come back after you've seen the film also trigger warning we might be getting a little political when we talk about this stuff so i don't, I don't want to offend anybody at any point at any time so just go ahead turn off the podcast watch the movie come on back we'll still be here so ken when was the first time you saw grand illusion and what did you think the first time I saw it was on a PBS program called Cinematic Eye. It was broadcast in 1978. They had a host introduce the movie, give you some background detail about it. Then they'd show the film, and at the end of the film, he'd have some closing comments. It was 78, and throughout the 70s, film was my consuming passion. At that time, I was trying to catch up on everything that had come before in the history of film, while at the same time watching all the contemporary American films that were coming out. And they were great. It was the best decade for American film as far as I'm concerned, the 1970s. 
but they tended to be dark and cynical and oftentimes violent because they were reactions against recent American historical history, you know, like Watergate and the Vietnam War. So that was how I was adjusted. That was my mindset at that time was I saw Grand Illusion for the first time through the prism of this dark, cynical, violent sensibility. And so when I saw that film, it was, I didn't know it at the time. I didn't have words for it, but later I realized it was the first time I'd ever been exposed to a humanistic perspective. And it set me aback for a few days. And I think that since then it's kind of like in a small way, it's helped me mature. It, it's good. Always good to see this, to get a balance again, to, to, get those ideas back into your head because especially in these turbulent times that we're living in right now. So at first I was kind of startled. What is this? Why, why are these people nice? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, so that was kind of unusual at that time. But uh, like I said, in a small way, it, I think it contributed to my own personal maturity and it's something uh, attitude and a perspective i'd like to keep in mind from time to time so it's good to revisit the film how about you tom it's a bit of a long story but we have to go back to the 90s and my kind of first introduction to the grand illusion actually kind of had nothing to do with actually actively seeking it out but more to do with the fact that we laserdisc never ever took off in the UK like it did in America. And my friends and I were kind of massively into films in like the mid nineties in our late teens. And my friend's brother came back from America and he actually told us about this wonderful thing called Criterion and Criterion laser discs. And from his description of it, it sounded like manna from heaven for us because we'd only just had VHS that were in letterbox. And I think the first film we actually bought in that format was actually Alien 3. And it just seemed like this kind of thing that was just completely out of our price. We could never be able to afford it. We never had any idea how we could possibly have Criterion in our lives. Then, of, of course, along Poodle's DVD in the late 90s, and we all rushed out and bought our washing machine-sized players, had them chipped for like £100, if memory serves, to pay region-free DVDs. And then, much to my amazement, I was flicking through, there was a magazine here called Neon, which was kind of the Armand White of film magazines in the 90s, and it didn't stay in circulation for very long, because possibly because it was the Armand White of film magazines. And at the back, they had an advertisement saying that you could buy imported Region 1 discs, and of course, what did I see? And it was the very first Criterion DVD, which was Le Grand Illusion, and I'd just gone to university at the time, and I, I think I paid about £60 to have it sent over for the disc and posted and packaging and all this kind of import tax and whatnot, and I was expecting this kind of highbrow art house film. And I kind of got that, but what I also got out of The Grand Illusion was how accessible it was and how it reminded me a lot of films that I had really liked, especially, and we'll probably talk about it in, in a little bit more detail, like British war films from the 1950s and films like The Great Escape. And I just kind of fell in love with it, and I didn't really know a great deal about Jean Renoir. I didn't even know who, who his father was at this time, and this is bearing in mind I was still at filming, uh, but film school. And I just began, I went to the, I remember going to the library at our university and renting out as many of his films as I could. 
And it kind of started a really lifelong love affair with Jean Renoir films. And he always kind of interested me on the basis that he, in terms of kind of his films and their place in history, but also the way in which he was kind of looked at by critics and how he, the role he, the, the, especially in the case of The Grand Illusion, how it's kind of, estimation amongst film critics changed as a result of people like Kaya's the cinema and their kind of view on authorship and how they came to reevaluate the film in the 50s and you kind of what i found with the grand illusion was i got not only a wonderful film but a film that had a great history to it as well which i'm sure as well we're going to talk about and it's history within film history and it i i, I can't remember honestly how many times i've watched it and to kind of echo what Ken was saying when I was watching it again this morning. It was a, a kind of a timely reminder of the fact that we live in a very divisive age and I kind of thought this film's better than who I am at the moment which is kind of a uh, slightly depressing. I actually just saw this for the first time probably about two months ago maybe. I mean I this was I, I've said this uh, in recent weeks that this year on the projection booth, it's really been a lot of discovery films, uh, things that I've had either suggested to me or just the way that things have come about. Um, I am experiencing a lot of these things for the first time. And this is one of those movies that's, that has been on my to watch list for probably years. I remember when I was doing research on Orson Welles years and years ago that he insisted that this was one of the best films that he's ever seen. So it's like, okay, well, if Orson Welles is recommending a movie, maybe I should probably pay attention. So uh, I can't say that Mr. Welles was wrong. This movie, oh my gosh, I had no idea where it was going to go. It kept me guessing every single moment of the film what was going to happen and by the end i was in tears i it just was a very emotional ride for me to watch this movie and to see the way that it was to your point uh ken very humanistic and just the relationships of this and then i was really surprised we were joking around beforehand uh before recording about you know where were the war scenes in this this is a war movie you know where some people would feel ripped off but when we open up the film and we have uh uh marichal and it looks like he's going to go off with this uh, lorry and, and go to whatever town he's talking about. And then he kind of, you know, oh, no, you're supposed to pick up this captain. And then you guys are going to go check out this uh, picture that you took on an aerial mission. And we're going to really see what is there. And then kind of cut to uh, these German soldiers. And they start talking about how they shot down a plane. I'm like okay, uh, we're not going to see that, huh? We're not going to see the aerial mission at all. And and it's wonderful that we don't. And we don't have scenes of tanks and infantry and all of these kind of things. We don't get the airplanes at all. This is a war movie without war. It is, it's all about these POWs throughout so much of it. I mean, because they are in the camps within 10 minutes of this movie starting. And then just to see those relationships, I mean, once they're shot down, we see Eric von Stroheim come in, and he's the one that had shot them down. And a lot of people, hopefully, will know Eric von Stroheim, of course, as being one of the best directors in the world, but also being a fantastic actor. And for me, always he's going to be Max from uh, Sunset Boulevard. 
And to see him come in and start talking about how he shot down these the, this plane, and when they bring in Marischal and Baudelio, and they have this just really nice meal with the German soldiers, and they're talking just like regular people, and the way that Rothenstein and, and, and Baudelio are uh, connecting and talking about the good old days, it's like wow, this is really remarkable. I had never seen anything like that. At that point, though, the film immediately jumps into a couple of the major motifs and themes that run throughout the movie. And that's uh, de Baudieu's, uh and Rothenstein's class. They're aristocrats. Notice the fact that when they don't want anyone to understand what they're saying, they'll revert to English. And that's the other major thing that comes out in that scene is language. And how it's used as both a a barrier, uh, well, just as a barrier. And that's one of the major things. But people try throughout the movie at one point or another. You'll see examples of people trying to leap that barrier. So right from the start, the movie is establishing some of its major motifs. I actually think, I mean, I have to slightly disagree with you. I think the reason they actually speak English was because amongst the aristocracy in Europe at that time, English was the common language. And I think it actually says more about their class than it does that they're trying to hide something from other people. It was, I mean, yeah, I can understand that, but but it serves both purpose because when they are speaking about more intimate things throughout the movie, uh, it like personal relationships and other people are around them. That's when you'll notice they they speak about those things in English. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, I'm sure we'll get to the scene as well when you know, they try and tell the, the British about about the tunnel as well, because I mean that fails ma- majorly because of, of, of the language barrier. But I mean, I, I think one of the things that the film did brilliantly at the, at the start is that I mean there was originally um, going to be in the script in the original script there was going to be the scene of them being shot down. It was actually cut because they simply couldn't get the money. But I think the film kind of sets its stall out from the beginning because you see the French in their kind of mess at the start and they're kind of all sat around the bar drinking and it kind of fades over to Germans and it's exactly the same. And it kind of establishes this fact that despite the fact that they're on opposite sides as it were, they're just a bunch of guys sitting around drinking and I think it kind of sets its stall out without a word really being said to kind of show the commonality between the two groups even though they are completely divided uh, technically you know that they see each other as enemies but i mean it, it is amazing in that scene how just obscenely nice everyone is i mean there's the bit where you know he, he can't eat his food and the the, the, the germans like oh, you know don't don't you want it and he's like well i can't because my arm and so like, i'll cut it up for you you know oh thank you very much and so this is all very twee and nice and it's kind of it, it it's it's unlike like I said, it's, it's unlike any war film that you normally see and it's it's quite refreshing going back to it, even today when i was watching it how um it's it's, it's almost nice it, it's there's something quite heartwarming about watching that those at those early moments well and even if you just look at the set you know the to your point i mean it's one canteen to another canteen it's one record player there's another record player there's posters on the wall in one place there's posters on the wall in the other place it's just the language of the songs of the posters those are the only thing that's really different between those those two canteens and then kind of going along with that it's really it seems more like we are all 
airmen, and we connect that way. And then even when uh, it's Bolion and Rothenstein and they're talking about stuff, or uh, Marischal and the German soldier, they start talking about their jobs and just that you know their jobs or their their past lives, and just they connect through that. And there are so many things about. The work that people do, and there are characters in this movie where we never really learn their names. They're just pretty much the engineer, the teacher, you know, and they are just known by those kind of things rather than their name or anything else. And definitely not about their their rank or their uh, uh, professions in the army. It's more their uh, lifestyle before their lives before they got into the army, and they talk about that with, uh, of course, with admiration and longing of what they were before. And this whole movie, there are so many times where we are interrupted uh, with things, like the song, the Fru Fru song at the beginning is interrupted. He has to leave before it is over. There are, uh, there's another record player towards the end that kind of winds down a little bit. And there's so many times where conversations or moments will be interrupted. And it almost, to me, kind of speaks to their normal lives were going along and then they were interrupted by, I don't want to say the inconvenience of the war, but this war just completely took everybody away from what they're supposed to be doing. Throughout the course of the movie, however, conflicts do arise and they're based more upon class than uh, any sense of nationalism. The worst thing you could say about any of the individual characters in the movie is that at their worst, they're motivated by those things like uh, by their class, by uh, a sense of nationalism, uh, by their sense of duty. These are what brings out the worst in them. Yeah, I mean, most certainly. Yeah, I, I, one of the things that I, I've always looked at the grand illusion is that when when I watch the film, it's like they've got this, obviously this terrible thing going on that's the war, and Renoir has managed to sort of find something in that war amongst all this horror and hideousness, which is the fact that people are universally decent to each other, and. I mean, when I'm watching it, I'm sort of thinking, why are you guys trying to escape? You know, just sit it out. Just take it easy. I mean, you know, there's no, I mean, this is, you're talking for someone. My grandfather was shot down on, on, on the first bombing raid of World War Two. So he spent his entire war sat in a prison camp. And he used to say, people would tip up and say like, right, let's get out of here. And my grandpa would be like, what do you mean? This is great. We haven't got to do anything, you know. Nothing, nothing bad, you know. He was just like, "This is, this is fine," you know. We've done our bit. We can just sit this one out. And when you're watching the Grand Legion, like, come on, guys, like, dispense with this um, patriotism and sense of duty. But it does come back to that. I mean, I suppose they're they're kind of better people in the way that they want to constantly do their bit for the war effort, even if that means breaking out. But you sort of watching it thinking, I mean, especially in the first prison camp, it doesn't seem that bad. It's like, guys, come on, <laughs> take it easy. Right, right. Yeah, it's like it, it kind of reminds me, and and I'll, I'll bring this up later on, I'm sure, but it kind of reminds me of Hogan's Heroes where it's just like, guys, really, this is not that bad. I mean, Colonel Clink is the best 
camp commandant that you guys could possibly want. You can, and they can get out, and they can go into town, and they can have beers, and they can come on back, and just, you know, like it's just like what? Why? Why do you want to escape this? It's just okay, but all all they're gonna do is if you escape, if you make it back to your own troops, they're just gonna put you back on the front line again. You know, it, it, so yeah, I guess it is all about patriotism, and I guess it's just something that you know I feel like I'm I'm a very patriotic person but i don't know if i would be like itching to escape and especially when it comes to like okay you can get shot pretty easily when you try to escape here you know like it's just if you cool it out if you stay put if you don't piss off people like just uh you know we see the consequence of one of those times we see uh thrown into the brig at one point and he's he's losing his shit it's just like dude if you hadn't tried to escape then you'd be all right it's okay uh, he was put in a solitary confinement for the one moment, I believe, that was really the most nationalistic, patriotic thing. He leads a chorus of Les Massions in the, where they were putting on their vaudeville show, and that was what got him put in the brig there. I wasn't sure if there was a one-to-one relationship between those, if that was just that kind of – we were supposed to associate that or if not. So I can kind of see arguments for either. I think he's the one who kind of gets done for base. He's the full guy, basically, for everyone kind of getting up and singing. But I mean, it's like it's, it's brilliant because you've got like Rosenthal's getting these um, packages sent from home and he's getting like cognac and wine. And the Germans are sat there and they're eating this slop and they're even talking about, you know, what, what they must be, what the French must be. Eating. And they're having a full on feast in their thing. And then, you know, there's like kind of like fish going round and like the wine's flowing. And yeah, you sort of sit there and think, guys, come on, you know, it's, it's, it's not that bad. But this is, I suppose, one of the things about the Grand Illusion. It's about bigger ideals, I suppose, than simply kind of putting up with your lot in life. And at the end of the day, they're soldiers. They're, they're French soldiers. It's their duty to cause as much chaos as they can. So they kind of get on with building this tunnel beneath them. The very basic, common, fundamental things that, that all people experience were shown in the film versions of those things from these different people you talk about the meal where they're talking about what they're getting to eat the russians are eating this the french are eating this the british get this entertainment uh the vaudeville show the germans have a sing-along in in one of their in uh, office room or something there uh we're shown examples that and what i think renoir wants to show uh, that's a way of of showing that we're all pretty much the same when it comes to our fundamental needs. And so you get little bits of that here and there throughout the film. I thought that the the meal thing was especially telling. Well, I think so much of this is about people playing a role. You know, things are expected of people when they are, you know, things are expected of these soldiers. It's almost expected that they're going to escape is how I kind of see it. Like, okay, if we put you in here, we expect that you're going to try to break out. So we're going to give you all these rules and we're going to say, you know, strictly verboten, you know, just like we know that this is going to happen, but we're still going to lay down all these rules for it because that kind of comes back the whole idea of roles. I mean, you're talking about the songs and stuff 
stuff. There's the show that they put on. There's the one guy who uh, dresses, uh, puts on the woman's clothing. That is one of those remarkable scenes, especially when all of the action just stops in the entire room to look at the one guy who's wearing the dress. And he's just like, oh, this is very droll. And everybody else is just staring at him, like remembering the women from home. And it's just like, wow, okay, this is a moment. This is a very powerful moment. Exactly. It's my favorite moment in the whole movie, and it's done so artfully. No dialogue is is used to to put across that thought, that feeling. It's just a a remarkable moment. The other thing about that scene as well um, was that in the original screenplay, it was a lot darker, actually, what actually played out, because in the original screenplay, um, the prisoners are constantly looking at this German woman who's getting changed near the camp, and she's kind of like teasing them by kind of lifting up her skirt and all that kind of thing. And they actually grab her and start ripping her clothes off. I think for kind of obvious reasons, it was it was cut, or it, was, it wasn't, it was never filmed. But that scene in particular, I, I always think it, when you kind of come back to kind of like, what are the, you know, what is the grand illusion about? I think that's one of the scenes that really encapsulates the film because it's this kind of they they dress this guy up in in women's clothes and it's like they all suddenly go to the same place of reminiscing and there's constant references in the film to what the women are doing or they're going to go and see women so you know that there's this lie underlying sexual tension that's going on because obviously being depraved of a female company but um, for contemporary audiences as well in france um that scene would have been even even more profound because after the war there was a massive women's movement and actually it was actually coined new women in france where they began to dress with kind of shorter hair and and shorter skirts and all this kind of thing and that scene would have played out very differently for the people watching the grand illusion because it reminded them of that post-war age where there, where there was this kind of real schism between all these men coming back from the front and what had obviously happened behind that. It's the same thing that happened in Britain. You had um, women taking prominent roles in in the work life. You know, they were the munitions maker. You had the kind of the whole suffragette movement. And that scene, I mean, when I found out about that context, it really does it makes it slightly more fun, just the, the sheer kind of dumbstruckness as they all just look at this guy. And it's, it's one of those, it's very, it's a very bold moment, I think, in the film. You don't expect it to see it in a film from this time. Yeah, there's that great moment where uh, the one guy who he just always reminds me of LeBeau from Captain, from Hogan's Heroes, where he's got like the uh, beret. He's like the most French person in this entire film. All French people, you know. Oh la la, you know. He's like the Gerard Depardieu of the film. Um, and when he starts talking about like, oh, can you imagine the women with their hair cut short and be like sleeping with a boy? It's weird because there's a lot of like weird uh, kind of homoerotic over tones to the film and then to follow that up with all of those men just stopping and looking at the one guy in drag it's just like okay and there's also the idea of the the idea of play when it comes to there's a line later on about the uh well there uh, all of the uh, our main prisoners 
are in a room and they're again working with these costumes and it's interesting some of the costumes are very much like soldiers from other wars or at least that's how i saw them uh, some of these costumes and they're in there and they're almost playing soldier and they are acting inside of this room and then they look out and they see these these young german soldiers and they say something about like you know the the children are playing soldiers and and the soldiers are playing at being children and just the way that they kind of turn that on its head and just to see like i mean some of the, the the very few female roles in the entire film like real female roles not guys in drag uh some of these old women who are outside of the camp and they look in and they see these young german soldiers and they're just like those poor young men it's like, yeah, by this time in the war, they've probably gone through a lot of these older soldiers, and here they are, like, taking the younger and younger ones as the war goes on. The key thing about that scene is the sound as well, that marching, the marching on the cobbles, and there is almost the machine element to it. The, the BBC did a, a, a brilliant series called The Great War, and this was it. It's you can get it on DVD. It costs absolutely hundreds now. It went out of print a long time ago, but there's a, there's a brilliant episode on that, like, and it shows what was going on in Germany to, towards, you know, the, the latter end of the, certainly the, the, the final two years. And I mean, literally school teachers would be hammering it home to students that the best thing that they needed to do was stop coming to school and sign up for, for the war effort. And Germans were being slaughtered by the thousands on a daily basis. And there's just this machine like noise of the marching on the cobbles and they're looking at them and, and I don't know if I was reading slightly too much into it, but I almost sense there's a kind of, you've got the, the guys in the prison camps who are there, they're kind of the veterans who have been there just looking at these guys, possibly knowing how they're going to end up. It'll either be in a prison camp or they'll be dead. I think there's something, something reson- certainly resonated for me seeing that. Well, in the movie, if I am remembering correctly, it is set pretty much... Uh, 1916, 1917, if memory serves. So, I mean, that was, you know, the, the war started in July of 1914. So we're already two years into the war. And so, yeah, those soldiers are probably getting younger and younger on the German side as they're just burning through all of these young men to try to win this war, this futile effort and then even that they address uh and i think where i get my dates from is is they talk about the battle of um uh Verdun. Verdun, yeah yeah. and just um you know and that's that's a a, an amazing moment because that's really there's there is some patriotism to this film but that's the most patriotic moment is when they talk about you know taking back the the one hill and they break into la marseille and i think that it's amazing that it's the british guy who asked for la marseille to be played rather than a frenchman and then the way that that shot plays out the way that we go i mean there are some amazing tracking shots in this film and the way that we track from the orchestra all the way around and we see those German soldiers in the theater and they get up and they leave. And then the, with the way that we end on those French soldiers and just everybody is, you know, just belting it out. I, to me, I was just like, well, Michael Curtiz must've seen this uh, <laughs> before course. Casablanca yeah. because the, that feeling was exactly the same that I got when, when that was happening. I mean, let me say is, is, one of the best national anthems that's out there really moves you when you hear it. Oh, yeah. Right up there with O Canada. And God save the Queen. 
it, well, no, it pains me to say it, but it is possibly one of the best national anthems. And you're talking from you're talking, it's pretty great. But I mean, as, as well, I mean, the other thing about I mean, and, and this is one of the things about the Grand Illusion as well. It, it really kind of grounds you as well because as we get to later on in the film, um, when we get into Elsa. Um, what's happened at Verdun has obviously had a massive impact on her life as well. And I think this is one of the, the, the great things about La Grande Illusion. It always reminds you that there's consequences to the things that are going on. And whilst you have this rather wonderful moment where everyone's standing up and seeing La Marcia, and it, it, it's just jingoistic. It's the most jingoistic in the film, the most jingoistic moment f- for sure. But you know, Renoir reminds us later on, an hour and a half later, that with this battle there would be consequences of which we see and it, I, I think it's a, a rather brilliant little way of kind of tying it all together well there were consequences just by uh Marichal on stage making the announcement that the fort had been retaken and and that i i, I insist or i believe that uh that's why he ended up in solitary confinement was he stopped the performance which was okay by the german soldiers to break in, to break the news that uh, the fort had been retaken. And I think he suffered the consequences of doing that. The other thing about him going when he goes into solitary confinement, because you're expecting it to be the typical sadistic Germans that we've become used to, in certainly through films, and what happens when he does go into solitary confinement and begins to start losing the plot. What does the guard do? Well, he's incredibly kind to him. In the end, he gives him the harmonica and tries to comfort him and, you know, sort of dig him out the hole that he finds himself. And it's like every time I think this film has the opportunity to be cruel and mean, it kind of pulls itself back a little bit and kind of shows us the better part of humans. And Marichal, interestingly enough, uh, Gabin was this enormous matinee idol in France. And yet I think that his actions are the most questionable of most of the characters in the film because of the fact that in that solitary confinement scene, he really complains about not being able to hear his his French tongue being spoken. Also, he seems to, like, at first not trust Elsa, and it may have had something to do with the just the fact that she was German. So he has a couple questionable moments in the film regarding these barriers that Renoir suggests we have to leap over language and nationality. Well, and don't forget the other big one, which is religion. That whole idea of Rosenthal being the Jew in the camp and the way that he is from, quote unquote, new money, and which I think rubs Baudelaire the wrong way because he is old money and it definitely rubs Rothenstein the wrong way. And there is a discussion of that later on once they change camps from uh, Halsbach to Winterborn and we are reintroduced to the Erich von Stroheim character. And then that's also where Rosenthal comes back. He's already at the camp, and so he comes in, and so they get to continue their lavish meals and everything. But there's a part where Rothenstein says, you know, after the war, the Bodleos and the Rothensteins of the world are, you know, we're going to be usurped because this is bringing basically a, a equalizer to classes. At least that's how he sees it. And he asks at one point, he asks Baudelaire, uh, he's just like, is there a uh, a rope in this room? Is there is there something in this room that shouldn't be in this room? Is actually what he says. He doesn't say rope. And 
people, Leo, knowing that he had put a rope that they were working on outside of the window, is able to actually honestly tell him, no, there's nothing in this room that shouldn't be in this room. And he questions Rothenstein as far as, why would you take my word for it? Why not the word of a, a, a Marshall or a, a Rosenthal? And he, and the way that von Stroheim just kind of spits out those names, it's just like, okay, yeah. I mean, this is, this is 1937 that this movie is being made. We have yet to get to 1939 with, <laughs> with that, but we are already, those seeds of anti-Semitism, well, they've been around for thousands of years almost, it seems like, but, you know, it, it, those seeds that are going to be taking, you know, going to be sprouting in Germany, uh, any moment now, you know, they're, they are, they're already there. And, and we hear that in Rothenstein's voice, the, the way that he spits out Rosenthal's name. One of the reasons that Goebbels named it the cinematic public enemy number one, Renoir was well aware of the anti-Semitism that was going on in Germany with Hitler. And it's kind of remarkable that the movie was only 20 years removed from the uh, from the end of uh, the First World War. And it was on the precipice of the beginning of the Second World War. And it's so uncanny how we both looks back and appears to be looking forward as well. Well, I mean, the other thing as well that happened was that in France itself, and because of what was going on in Germany, there had been a lot of Jewish people had left Germany to go and move in, move to France. And anti-Semitism was on the rise anyway within France. It's kind of in, one of the things I've always found about it is like everything I've read about um, Renoir and everything that I've kind of I've come to know about him. I think the point he's making in the film is that anti-Semitism is bad. But when you watch the film, and when you think about the contemporary audience, I think in some respects it might have played to quite a lot of their prejudices. Like Rosenthal's from, he's, he's from money, he's from the kind of, he works in the textiles industries. These were all kind of stereotypes that were flying around at the time. There's even a suggestion, I don't even, I mean, this is, I, th- I think you really would have to kind of do some uh, rather weird joining the dots, but even when he gets, um, injured at, towards the end of the film when he can't walk. Apparently, there was a, or obviously, a, a myth going around in the Middle Ages that Jewish people had kind of um, hooved feet like the devil, and that actually kind of morphed, morphed into the 19th century, where they actually said that they had kind of like um, limps and all that kind of thing. And apparently, apparently, um, one contemporary reading of the film was to sort of say, well, you know, the reason he's having trouble walking is because he's just this filthy, disgusting Jew. I don't, I'm absolutely convinced that's not what, um, Renoir was implying with the film. But I think uh, in trying to make a point, I think it does kind of veer into actually probably for its contemporary audience, for the kind of the more, um, closed mind of them that it probably does. Uh, reinforce a lot of ideas that were ha- which were flying around at the time, and, and but he does everything. I, I think Rosenthal does everything to show that he isn't what he is supposed to be. He's immensely generous with you know he, he gets his packages from home, and the first thing he does is that he even gives some to the German guard, doesn't he? In the camp, he gives him some chocolate. I think it is. I'm not sure if that's a bribe or he's just being nice. But when he kind of with his with his his comrades and. He's he's always giving them. He's always providing for them. He's always being kind to them. 
he's obviously very patriotic. I think he actually kind of, at one point, he actually cries when they're kind of digging the tunnels. So I think Renoir's kind of showing us that he's, he isn't what you're supposed to think he is. But from what I understand anyway, I think that the, perhaps, unfortunately, I think the film might have played to certain prejudices that were going on at the time. Well, it's funny because later on today, I'm recording an episode about They Live, and recently that film was quote unquote reinterpreted as an anti Semitic, you know, like, oh yeah, you put on the glasses and you show you, show you all the Jews that are really secretly running things in society to the point where John Carpenter had to come out and say, it's not about Jews, you fucking idiots. It's about <laughs> fucking yuppies, you know? <laughs> oh, no, stop. <laughs> Well, yeah, Rosenthal is just absolutely generous. And then it's interesting, he's one of the few people, other than, you know, we see Rothenstein and, and, and uh, Bodleo, the way that they will switch languages, they know, you know, uh, I think Bodleo just basically knows um, French and English. Rothenstein knows uh, all three. And then later on, it isn't until right towards the end of the movie that we find out that Rosenthal can also speak German, and he's able to provide that great gateway between Elsa and Marischal. And that is one of those great reveals when you're just like, oh shit, he knows how to speak German. He's actually able to communicate with this woman. That is fantastic. Yeah, that caught me, my, caught me by surprise, definitely. And I think as well, I love the fact that he's kind of the conduit by which that romantic uh, relationship develops. I mean, he's able to kind of get get the seeds going. Originally, as well, they both got with her. There was there was sort of scenes in which they it was implied that um, they had both had romantic liaisons with her. But I, I think it's quite given the dynamic of their relationship, the fact that he's able to facilitate this romance. I think it, it's nice as well because the way he's being treated throughout the film. I think. Um, you know, he's, he's kind of referred to as is he, he called him a dirty Jew or something like that. And that's at the end, isn't it? He, he calls him something. He, yeah. he, he does call him something, doesn't he? He says like, uh, he, he says something, I can't abide Jews or something like that. And yeah, it, it's the fact it kind of like comes full circle that he's able to actually help this guy who's become his friend in the end. Yeah, in the subtitles that I saw, he did call him, Marischal calls Rosenthal a dirty Jew when they're out on the road and they're they're at wit's end and, and Marischal, uh, uh, Rosenthal's foot has been hurt, but uh, apparently at one point uh, Renoir saw a version of this. I want to say it was in the seventies, and the subtitles changed. It was the fifties. It. it was the nineteen fifties. Was at Berkeley University. He was introducing it there, and um, yeah, they got the subtitles wrong, and apparently he actually ran down the cinema, absolutely screaming. That they had mixed the subtitles up because he, he called him. He, I can't remember what he referred to him or something like that. But yeah, I, I read the same thing that it was there was some kind of mistranslation of what was going on. Yeah, that they they had softened the language to take out the dirty Jew and basically, you know, you know, good neck or whatever it was. It was just like, <laughs> no, no, he has to call him a dirty Jew. This has to be in there to show that Marshall maybe isn't you know there's that barrier that we we're talking about before he hasn't crossed that particular barrier and he really has to i mean marshall is 
you know, he, while he's our protagonist, even though at times other characters kind of seem like they are vying for that role, but Marichal is the one who changes the most through this. And by him being able to get the fuck over his anti-Semitism, that is a major change for him. That is a major development that he's able to do that and that they do end up going off together at the end of the film. That is a moment here that we have seen his growth as a character. When they have the the conflict, when they're on the road there, that in and of itself is enough to drive anybody crazy. Their circumstance, their situation, and that's what elicits Marichal calling him a dirty Jew. But it's also the recognition that, after all, they are on the road together and they have to rely on each other. And that's, in a nutshell, that's that's the movie. That's that's the world. I mean, the other thing as well, I mean, this is one of the things when I was learning about Jean Renoir was, um, as, as a director, I always thought he was, and one of the reasons why he was kind of like re-evaluated, I suppose, by, you know, kind of Truffaut and Andre Bazin and all that kind of people was because what actually came out about Le Grand Illusion was the amount of, um, collaboration he had with his actors and it didn't kind of sit well with the kind of the French new wave critics that he had kind of, um, had had been so collaboratory when he when he's making the film and on that scene when they're on the road with, with Marichal and Rosenthal, uh, there was actually massive dialogue scenes that were written for these two, and it, he he really wanted to kind of get to the the kind of the the meat of their relationship, and it was going to be a lot lot longer. But what actually transpired was it was so cold that Jean Gabin was like, I, I can't be done with this. This is actually like intolerable and i can't work like this we're all freezing to death and he was just like well you guys go and do what you want to do then and they kind of ad-libbed the scenes that they were doing on the road and he was like great you know that works brilliantly and he even admitted afterwards it was better what those guys invented than anything that had been written or had been planned and yeah i think i think he referred to it as a happy accident and it's so true because it really does i think this film builds up to that moment this idea yeah, these two have kind of the, the two most unlikeliest people to escape have managed to get away the two the two most different people like i said i mean mike, mike marishaw is the kind of the he is the protagonist of the film. he is the one who i suppose who has the biggest arc in the film and and as a filmmaker it, it's i love the fact that renoir was kind of humble enough to kind of say well you guys just do what needs to be done and i'll go with it and then ended up agreeing with what they did well, yeah, as we've been talking about this, you've brought up several points where it's like in the original, it was like this, or at one point it was like that. And it's just amazing how much this changed throughout. I mean, we all know that great works of art will change from beginning to end, from intention to execution. But this one seems to be vastly different between the way where it started and the way that it ended. And it just seemed to be constantly changing, both in the original creation of it. I mean, to to read about you know oh it was originally going to be based on this guy and then uh you know Renoir brought in some of his war experience and then he met this other soldier and he had these experiences where he was captured and just all of these different people that that brought in things i know that that uh uh Eric von Stroheim brought in different uh things as well i mean it was his idea to have uh the broken body of Rothenstein and and the neck brace which is just such an iconic look you know when i think of von Stroheim, I think, of course, well, of, you know, the monocle and all this kind of stuff, but that, that neck piece, when you see him in that, and just the way that he walks, the way he carries himself, just brilliant. He was born to wear a neck brace. 
it's a brilliant performance. It really is. I mean, I mean, it's a brilliant physical performance as well. I mean, when like somebody gets the neck brace, he even walks really funnily. I mean, I, I noticed it today, and he kind of he, he kind of has his spine at this weird angle. And the film and that character was never supposed to be that big. I mean, it's only because Renoir was so obsessed with him that he gave him the part. And um, I mean, I, I know they clashed very, very early on in the production. I mean, I think there were tears actually because I think Renoir was he had kind of cast his 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 icon in a role, and he tipped up and was being an absolute pain in the ass for the first few days. And um, there, there was he was he was falling out of everyone. But it's like Renoir says in his biography. He suddenly came out. He designed that. Uh, yeah, like I said, he, he even designed the neck brace. You know, he designed the mannerisms. And he completely changed the character, and the character was was rewritten to fit the creation that von Stein had created. And uh, it's a tremendously moving performance as well. I mean, it re- it gets me when I watched it again this morning. It really got me. I want to read a little bit. We're going to be hearing uh, later on in the show from Nicholas McDonald, who wrote uh, In Search of the Grand de Lucien, a critical appreciation of Jean Renoir's elusive masterpiece. But he talks about this. I was actually just reading this this morning. He goes, um, early in the filming, they argued over Stroheim's idea to incorporate prostitutes into the opening scenes at Wintersbourne. As he later related his version of the story, Renoir was so distraught that he burst into tears and said that rather than quarrel with someone he respected so much, he would give up directing the film. (laughs) This sounds, and I love this line, this sounds like a liberal dose of Br'er Rabbit psychology, but it worked. Touched by the jester, Stroheim agreed to follow Renoir's direction. The collaboration went smoothly thereafter. You can imagine it, the big artist having his meltdown and boo-hooing. I, 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 I mean, Von Stroheim, having Von Stroheim in your film is, is, I'm sure, like Orson Welles having John Huston in his film. You know, just like these people that they respect so much and who are such accomplished artists in their own right. I mean, it must really... That I'm glad that they ended up collaborating well together because I can see where you have those egos working on the same set where they could really just rub each other the wrong way. Especially, though, when you cast someone who's a director in a film and direct them. I mean, Renoir as well. I mean, he, he, he actually... I mean, he stated many times that you should... As a, as a filmmaker, you should always get to know every aspect of the cast and crew and that's behind and in front of the cameras and yeah he acted in in a lot of films and he he was a big into this idea that you can't know film until you know every aspect of it so he would he would learn about how how a camera works and he would learn about yeah how the lighting works from the lighting guys and would make it this collaborative process and to have someone like von stein in your film that's you he's going to be having opinions of himself. So when you're blocking scenes or setting shots up, if you see him shaking his head, you're going to think, well, yeah, but you you wouldn't not have that. I mean, you you wouldn't not think, well, what's he thinking? Is he, you know, how is he going to take direction? Is this going to be from Stein himself? I mean, he would, I've no doubt that he would have been watching what was going on thinking, well, I wouldn't be doing it like this. And it's one of those, I mean, like, like, like Romar says, one of those kind of like those happy accidents that I guess that they were able to kind of gloss over everything and get on with the film as it were and, and, and make it how it was. And I, I think the kind of the, the proof is in the final product really, because it, it truly is. I mean, 
the fact that Renoir was constantly taking advice from everyone around him and not being as egotistical just to say, this is my project, this is how it's going to work. And I really, really beseech anyone who has an interest in it to, to, to seek out the original screenplay and some of the story, but it's so different to what you actually get in the end. Well, let's talk about Von Stroheim reminds me of an incident that apparently took place on the set of Sunset Boulevard when uh, he came to the set for the first time and Billy Wilder said, Mr. Von Stroheim, it's an honor to meet you. You were 20 years ahead of your time. And Von Stroheim responded, I was 50 years ahead of my time or something. Yeah, so I can imagine that Von Stroheim had a very a, a sense of himself as being this this great director, and he would know better or he would do differently. So, yeah, you're right about that aspect of it. It would be daunting to have someone like that on your set. I want to talk about that last bit because I said earlier on when I was uh, kind of summing up the film that so much of this movie takes place at the the two camps. You know, we have the – it's nice. We have these mirror scenes of each other, right? We have the two canteens. We have the two camps. And then we go into the end, this whole end scene where they're on the road and they eventually find this barn and that's where they encounter Elsa and her, her daughter. And that whole bit at the end just ties up all of these things that we've been experiencing through the rest of the film. I mean, we have, it's almost like a microcosm of the film that takes place outside of kind of a war situation though we do get some soldiers in it uh, mostly we hear the soldiers more than necessarily see them other than the one soldier we uh get so much of the language stuff in this part we have play as well we talked about how it's uh children playing soldiers and soldiers playing children it's no coincidence that the soldier that we see is super young and we also have the play that we have with lottie the the elsa's daughter i mean there are so many amazing parts and this it's almost like a denouement i mean it's it's definitely longer than that but it's just it's it's you can't say that it's just tacked on because it integrates so well with the rest of the movie though it is a movie unto itself it feels well totally i mean and it's like what i said about when it when we find out about the the battle of verdun this has had a massive this this literally what's happened at verdun has changed her life her family have all been killed her husband's been killed and they tip up and there's been no women in the film no women of meaningful contact we've we've heard we've seen them Put, put on pictures on the wall. We've they've been lusted over in memory. They've been I mean that bit where they're kind of like getting the silk stockings out and they're kind of touching them and kind of obviously clearly thinking about women. We've had women constantly referenced. I think um there's even they're talking about um who's it Rumbushtar and they're, they're talking about a woman they they I think they've both had in a bar or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, yeah. And, but the, yeah, they both know the same woman from the same bar as well. That, I think, I think, I think there's an implication they might both have dated this woman, and I say dated with inverted commas and trying not to to sound crude. But they get to this scene, and it's the humility of which or on which they kind of treat her, and the fact that she's so kind to them, and there's a genuine warmth there. And I think, it, like you say, Mike, I think this is the moment when Moir sort of saying they're both on different sides and it's left open that after the war that they might meet again. And bitter 
kind of, I don't know, cynical me was at the end like, well, we both know what's coming, folks. And what's coming is merely prelude to what's happened before. It's just a skirmish for what's about to happen. There's no chance that um, Marishul and Elsa are ever going to get together in the future. But Renoir kind of leaves it like this is the big hope of the film that all these kind of these boundaries and these imaginary kind of blocks that would stop Marishaw and Elsa getting together really mean nothing. Love's going to conquer the day. And and when I was watching it, I was thinking, I really hope out after this film happened that those two got back together. But part of me was like, yeah, no, (laughs) it didn't happen. Right. Well, actually, interestingly enough, you, you mentioned about previous versions of the script. I'd read an account that a previous version of the script was supposed to end with Marischal and Rosenthal making a pact to meet at a particular bar on the day of the armistice. And that scene shows two empty chairs indicating that they'd both been killed. Oh, God. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But that wasn't it. They decided against that and went for this alternate fact. (laughs) Well, I was talking about the whole idea of the children at play before, and I forgot to mention that what brings Marischal and Rosenthal back together after that Dirty Jew moment that we focused on before was a children's song. Rosenthal's at the side of the road, and Marischal just starts storming away. Like, that's it. We're done. We're not together anymore. And they both independently start to sing the song that Baudelaire had played on the uh, penny whistle, which basically was was how he helped set them free. And the the way the the use of the lyrics in that song and something about like you know. Uh, the the little boat it undertook a long journey and after five or six weeks the rations began to wane and they're singing this song it's just like oh wow this is this is amazing and then when they come back together again that was one of those moments where i was just like you know my heart was just like oh this is so good and then the other one was when they kind of figure out like oh yeah we're we're gonna have to leave elsa's place Whoa, that was another moment for me. That and then the whole, the Marischal trying to learn German, trying to learn, you know, how to say that the little girl's eyes are blue. That attempt of him to try to say that. And then later on, when Elsa tries to say that, what was it? The coffee is ready. Those moments where they're reaching out to each other in each other's language. Is just, it, it, I mean, they're such simple fucking moments, but they're just wonderful. And they just really just make this film what it is and make this movie so special. The scene in particular that you mentioned where uh, Elsa says in French that the coffee is ready. A scene begins with Rosenthal opening up the door to find these two embracing at the window, looking out onto the field. And... At that moment, you don't know exactly what happened to him overnight. But when she says the coffee is ready in French, you get the idea. Maybe he was teaching her French all night long. <laughs> the alternative would be a little bit uncomfortable for a 1937 film. <laughs> I mean, it's like you're saying like the, the subtlety of the, the, the kind of like the playfulness of both trying to speak each other's language. It's it's, it's 
this film isn't melodramatic in that respect. I think it is about nuance and these little things like tiny little gestures, which means so much. And like you said, I mean, when, when I was watching it today, there's almost a sense that it's, it's, it's quite twee, that last bit of that, that last third of the film. I don't even think it's the last third, it's like the last 20 minutes of it. But there's a sense where you're kind of like thinking, I really hope that he just says, you know what, I'm going to stay. I, I, I was thinking like, when I first saw it, I, I seem to remember thinking, he, he'll stay and Rose, they'll walk Rosen towards the border and it'll be kind of, he'll go back to Elsa and everything's going to be great and I'm going to temporarily forget that the biggest conflict the world has ever seen breaks out two years later. But, you know, I, I really wanted him to stay. But again, I, I think the film's too honest to let him stay. I think, I, I think it, it knows what it is. It, it, it's, although it kind of, it gives you these nuggets. I don't think it's going to kind of let you off that easily and everyone's going to live happily ever after as they head off to the frontier of Switzerland. But this is where where the idea of duty uh, comes into play because it was his – he felt, I guess, some kind of a duty to, to go back on the front line or, or something to oh, help both, end the they war. Both talk about, they both talk about re-enlisting, definitely. Yeah, and also his duty to his friend Rosenthal as yeah. well. So what do you got to do in that situation? Yeah, no, I really wanted that. That was like that that end of, you know, before sunrise or whatever. It's just like, Ethan Hawke, stay, stick around. I hate him in that film for that very reason. Airfares, airfares aren't that much. And he's clearly from money. I never watched the other two movies after that because I was just like, fuck you. You should have stayed the first time. I was like, what are you doing, man? Stay. Do you know what I mean? Just ring your mum and dad. Say, can you put this on my credit card? I'm really sorry. I've met a super hot chick, and I think I'm in love with her. But you know, that's films. And and again, back to the language, and again, back to that those moments. I mean, right when he is leaving, and the way that they speak to each other in their native languages, and they're just like rattling on to each other and speaking. You know, they're having a conversation, but they don't know what each other is saying. It is wonderful. That that moment is is fantastic as well. Where they just it, at that point they've gone beyond language. They don't even need the words. They know what each other is saying just from the tone of voice, and it's just f- fucking brilliant. And and from Elsa's tears, it doesn't matter. She just knows what's happening. It's yeah, like I say, it's the film has reached that. It's it builds towards that conclusion, and it feels very organic as well. It doesn't feel forced. I don't think as well. I, I don't feel like. It, like, like, there's no massive swirl of music or anything like that. It's just very good filmmaking. It's the looks. It's the, you know, he's about to go in. Uh, Marichal's about to go into his room, and he looks back, and they don't kiss. They embrace. Yes, I just saw this movie recently, but I have not been able to get it out of my head since then. It is just every moment. It just the way that the film builds every moment, building on each other. It just, I can't say that it's a flawless film, but it, it's pretty darn close. It sure seems like it's one of the best films I've ever seen. Uh, like I said earlier, I was taken aback for like a week after having seen it for the first time. So, you know, I, I envy you seeing the film with fresh eyes at a more mature point in your life than I saw it at. Because I was still processing stuff. So if I had seen it for the first time later... I probably would have been overcome. But as it was, I was taken aback. As well, like the relevance of it in today's climate, that's what hit me today. 
about seeing it that the fact that we are in like these very divisive times and like i said at the top of the show really the film's a better person than i am i think at the moment and that, that's quite a scary sad thing to admit i think well yeah when it is so easy to just spew venom all the time and just to not be happy about anything just to see the way that these guys are able to cope with the world able to you know laugh and carry on and uh, at these horrible moments it just shows the absurdity of war and just the the joy of life that you have to embrace i mean i mean another thing i what i think is very personal for me about this film is i remember when my grandfather did die he died he was only like 69 when he died and at his funeral there was a group of guys there who knew, knew who no one knew and they were his his guards from his time when he was in a POW in Germany and he kept in contact with them along with his things and they came to his funeral and one of the things that we never knew about him was that once every five years they used to have a reunion Christ knows what that was like. I don't know if they used to like play prison guard and prisoner or something for a week. But they used to meet up like once every five years. And it transpired. We found all these letters that he had sent and this correspondence. And there was this group of guys there. And my, my dad was like, I don't know who they are. And obviously sort of everyone from the area had come out. And we got chatting to them. And they had all been friends for all this time. And I remember thinking like, I don't know, like 12 or something at the time. But I didn't really realize you know, the kind of the profoundity of it, I guess. And the fact that this these POW captor reunions had been going on. And they were telling us stories that like, they used to have like football matches and play ice hockey and all this kind of thing. And like they were telling us about the time when they like celebrated with the American prison and um, the American prison, they had um, you know, the 4th of July celebrations and all that kind of stuff. And it was like, oh my God. And when I was watching, you know, when I, when I first saw the Grand Illusion, I could identify that sense of kind of people coming together. And it was, I think that was something which I think is one of the reasons why it's meant so much to me over the years. I read somewhere that in an interview, Renoir, when asked what the title referred to, what specifically, what illusion was the grand illusion? And he said he'd like to leave that up to the audience to interpret that on their own. I knew that the base uh, the book was in some way based upon a concept by, uh, I believe, an English author who had written a book called The Great Illusion about. Yeah, uh, Norman Angle, who'd written a book. Also, curiously, he did. And I do think that that was the basic inspiration for the title. What would you say that the grand illusion is that is being referred to? Or how how do you interpret the film to get to that title? How does it make sense for you? There are, and I don't know if this is just translation or not, but it seems like they make reference to illusions quite a few times throughout the running of the film. And a lot of it just seems to be kind of the... You know, the nationalism and all this. And I would say that one of the biggest illusions comes at the very end of the film when we have Marischal and Rosenthal kind of tramping through the snow and the German soldiers are shooting at them. And then they look and they're like, oh, no, they're they're in Switzerland now. And it's like, well, how can you tell? It all looks exactly the same. And this whole idea of borders, to me, borders seem like the biggest illusion. They're just arbitrary lines on a map why who knows 
one part of Switzerland or one part of Germany, they sure look like the exact same landscape to me. So that, to me, is one of the biggest illusions. I don't know if that's the grand illusion, but that's one of the biggest ones of the film. I think it's more archetypal. They even make reference to it just before they cross the border. He says something like, borders are man-made and something else. And I think you're completely right. That's the moment for me that really encapsulates the Grand Union. Because it's not like there's a wall there. This isn't Donald Trump Mexico time. There's not this massive 40-foot wall saying our bit, your bit. That They literally go, they're firing their guns, aren't they? And then they just go, ah, oh, no, sorry, he's, he's across the border now. And I think that illusion, that that imaginary barrier transposes to every aspect of the film. Borders in general, language, uh, sex, nationality, race, they're all those are all borders and i think ultimately i don't know if, if he meant that but then again he sees, says he's leaving it to the to interpretation of the audience so that's the what i would see as the grand illusion is borders in general barriers in general and i, I think it's one of the, the things when i when i've gone back to it recently was that i don't necessarily subscribe to that view anymore i think we are in the most divided time certainly in my living memory and the fact that we kind of like i I think we've actually devolved into how kind of territorial we've become and it's like like i keep i keep saying really is that i think this film's better than i am in many respects i think it's a lot more idealistic than i've become there's this constant kind of reaffirming throughout the entire film that these are kind of petty little schisms that people have and everything's really kind of falls away really when you kind of hold when you hold anything up to kind of some grand ideal all you really have are kind of humans talking to each other and trying to kind of make sense of the world and that's the thing i take away from the grand illusion it's a film about wanting a better world a better society it's very difficult in america to have a political conversation nowadays and mike i'm sure you'll vouch for this you can't have a conversation with a political opponent or opposite here because it's almost as if you're seeing the world from different perspectives entirely and that what you see as what you perceive as reality, someone else, they have a different perspective of what reality really is. So it just makes it more and more difficult for people to come together here in the way that this film says we should yeah it's interesting talking about the illusion of walls and all of these things i mean there are moments in the film where we kind of will will track from one side of a character to another side of a character especially uh when they're at, at the first prison camp and at first it'll look like the the French are the prisoners, and then the camera will kind of turn around, and it's almost like the Germans are the ones who are behind the barbed wire. It's almost like they're the prisoners. And there are a few moments of that where it's just like, who's really being kept in? Who's really being kept out? You know, it's that whole idea of, you know, I, I talked about this on the Mafu Cage episode where it's just like, okay, are you being kept inside of the prison cell or is everyone else being kept out of it? You know, and it's just, it's, uh, he flips things like that quite often where it looks like, 
you know, is it really, you know, when we see Rothenstein uh, being, um, he's always in like doorways for a while. And it just the way that he's, while well, he's trapped in his own prison with that, that neck brace and everything, his body is his own prison. And the way that he talks about, you know, the, the war is his last big chance, you know, the, the after the war is done, his class is done. He's going to feel like nothing. I think he sees when Baudelaire passes away that that's, he is escaping and he is dying a soldier's death, whereas they've turned this amazing soldier that we saw early on in the film, the one who shot down the plane, now he's just a uh, a warden in a prison and he doesn't feel the respect that he, I think he thinks he deserves. So to me, he's now part of the prison. No, totally. I mean, he even says it, doesn't he? Uh, he I think he says something like he's now, because of his injuries, he's just, he's just this kind of like... Uh, police officer or something like that but yeah i i think it's when people ask what the grand illusion is i think you know kind of like kind of like bring it back and go back to what renoir said it's so it's so ambiguous i think you you, you can insert any meaning you want into it really and and that's one of the, i think one of the things that makes it so appealing and gives it its longevity is the fact that you can ascribe so much meaning to it and what's going on and kind of read into the nuances of the performances and what people say and even like, like the, you know, the directorial choices that he makes. And um, when I was at university and we discussed it like in my third year, I think one of my lecturers tried to kind of give us that definitive reading of what the film was about. And I was like, well, hang on a minute, mate. I don't think you can possibly come to any conclusions that you can, you can, you, you cannot say it's about this this or that i i think you'd you'd fall short when, when, under any form of investigation well let's continue our investigation we're going to uh, take a break and play an interview with nick mcdonald who is the author of in search of the grand illusion a critical appreciation of jean renoir's elusive masterpiece and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages let me ask you a question are you getting enough i bet you'd love more right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. You guys look like... What do they look like, Jimmy? Dorks. <laughs> they look like a couple of dorks. If you're looking for dorky, geek-filled content where you can nerd out over movies, television, comic books, and so much more, then you've come to the right place. The In the Mouth of Dorkness podcast is bringing geek-related content to you three times a week. 
Hey everyone, I'm the Turtle Dork here at Mod. On Mondays, we drop our Weekend Dork episode, which is a recap of sorts, where we discuss the most pertinent geek-related things we did in the previous week. Hi, I'm Wife Dork, and on Wednesdays, we drop our Homework Cast episode. Each week, the dorks take turns choosing a movie for the month's chosen dork to watch and review, like Heat, or Star Trek II, or Green Room. Howdy, I am the Mouth Dork. And finally, on everyone's favorite day of the week, we drop our Fistful Friday episode. Each Fistful episode is basically a top five list related to movies, comics, or some other geek-related topic. Because we all know at the end of the week, we need a little fist of Xander Cage. Hey, and I'm the Disco Dork. In addition to our regularly scheduled programming, we have special guests, film festival and comic convention coverage, interview episodes, and more. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Podbean, YouTube, and other podcast platforms. Just search In the Mouth of Dorkness or It Modcast, where we are for the promotion and progression of geek culture. How to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast. Part 2, The Blake 7 Method. Remove the character from the script. Introduce a new replacement character. Eventually, few of the original characters will be present, and the series will barely resemble its original form. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast. www.britishinvaders.com When was the first time that you saw The Grand Illusion? I saw Grand Illusion in 1959 when I was 14, and it was when it was re-released in the United States. And I saw it with my father, I remember in the Baronet Theater in, in New York. It made such a huge impression because it was the first movie that I really saw in a different way and kind of felt in a different kind of way I was you know I was I, I loved westerns and adventure films and I'd, I'd maybe seen some foreign films but they didn't mean anything to me but uh, it really affected me and, and my father then took me back uh, a week later we saw it for a second time it really started this kind of lifelong kind of connection with it so I would then I saw it a lot and it became my favorite movie and I became very very defensive about it. I mean, some people would, you know, not like it, and I would get very offended. I was, I was kind of like, you know, um, totally narrow-minded. And only with time, as I began to see more movies, and I, or even movies like Rules of the Game, I realized, well, you know, that's that's really as good as Grand Illusion. I became much less this kind of. Uh, prejudiced or, you know, a virulent defender. And then I could kind of, you know, see people disagree. All right, that's okay. Everyone has different points of view. But uh, So my feelings, my feelings for it have always gotten stronger and stronger, but I've kind of now realized that it's just one among some other great movies. And it's, you know, it's not this kind of standalone movie. You said that your dad took you to see this. Was that pretty typical? Did you and your dad go to see movies together quite often? No, not a lot. Um, my parents were divorced, and I lived with my mother. Later, I would see more movies because he'd invite me. He was a movie critic, among other things, for Esquire, and he would invite me to um, previews of movies that he was going to review, so I would see a number like that. But in general, no, it's, it's odd. I didn't really see a lot of movies with him. I mainly saw movies by myself. How did you decide to become a filmmaker? 
Well, one summer, this was when I was at Harvard, and I was interested in movies, and I had a summer job uh, here in New York. Um, it was actually, I was like a quote-unquote bodyguard for a woman who was doing a survey interview about venereal diseases. The uh, um, friend of ours was overseeing the study, and it was she was going into kind of rough neighborhoods. So I was there just to to be there, and I made enough money to buy a Bolex 16 millimeter. And then in college, I made three silent comedies with my future brother-in-law. In fact, that's how I met my wife through through making my first movie. She designed the she was a graphic designer, and she designed the invitation. We had a opening at the Carpenter Center, which had just been built, the Corbusier building in Harvard. And our first movie, we had a premiere at the Carpenter Center. And my wife designed the invitation for that. That's how I first met her. Um, But I made these three silent comedies just because um, I liked movies and got together friends. And I wrote wrote these scripts. And, um, you know, it was just, just for fun, basically. I think I actually first came to your work through Amos Vogel's film, The Subversive Art, uh, when he wrote about Palestine. I mean, that book turned me on to so many terrific films, uh, yours included, but it took me so long to finally be able to see Palestine. For folks who aren't familiar with your style of work, can you kind of describe the the movies that you made uh, during the early 70s? I made them without any kind of um, theory in mind. I just made them because it was the simplest way to make them. I had ideas about different subjects that I wanted to talk about, so I developed the what would become the voiceover, and then I would try to figure out how am I going to illustrate this, and so basically it's done by metaphor, and they're all shot basically within our apartment, and I... I do gorilla skits with my children's hands, you know, playing with toys or animate objects. I burn photographs, I puppets, I, I have newspaper clippings that get animated uh, while I'm talking about the subjects. And um, the first one was really about how I changed during the 60s. I made it in 1970, so it's a, the most autobiographical film showing how I kind of tried to stop being an armchair radical. And it talks a lot about SDS and the issue of violence and protests and and how do you fight against the system. But I use a lot of, of humor as well. I think it's important to show that, you know, you're a full person while you're, while you're talking about these things. And my children are playing in the background. So that's another thing of saying this is just one person's point of view. And then I got interested in anarchism in like 1971. So then my movie started to be from an anarchist perspective. And I began to realize in retrospect that these movies really do express the way they're done, express the anarchistic idea that it's just one person. This is not an objective documentary. I don't use documentary footage. So I don't say this is history. It's just me creating these images in my apartment while I'm talking about Vietnam in my second movie about Kennedy in Vietnam or about Attica in another movie I made or about Palestine. So it's just me with my voice talking about how I see the history. And a lot of my movies, I have a disclaimer saying this is all bias. This is objective. Um, 
And it really kind of, as I said, this wasn't theorized ahead of time, but the fact that I had very little money actually worked out, I think, to my benefit in terms of the way um, the movies were made because it became this home movie, basically, which meant this one person is saying all these things and it's up to you, the audience, to decide, well, maybe he's crazy. He doesn't doesn't have any proof other than what he's you know saying, as opposed to a history book, which pretends to be objective. And uh, For instance, I made my movie on Vietnam, The Liberal War. It's a 33-minute movie with the soundtrack, and it cost $600 to get to get a print. So, you know, the ratio was about one and a half or maybe two to one shooting. I wouldn't reshoot anything unless something was terribly wrong. So sometimes, you know, letters fall off the board and they just jump back on again because, you know, that saved having to redo it. I'm very wary of documentaries and because you can take the same footage and cut it in two different ways and have two totally different points of view. So this really, as I said, this is just a way of making it more personal. How were these films received and where would they have gotten shown when they were originally created? The two movies that have by far gotten the most exposure were Breakout, the first movie, and then I made a, a short movie, uh, No More Leadership, and then I made this uh, The Liberal War, which was in 1972. That was shown by the Museum of Art, and they bought a copy of it later. Uh, they showed Breakout, the first movie, um, and they've shown a lot of my other movies. So they were very supportive, uh, but mainly in left-wing organizations like the Wobblies, the Libertarian Book Club, places like that, in colleges, certainly, uh, college classes about, you know, political classes or uh, classes about Vietnam or whatever, largely through friends. And then some museums, the Whitney Museum has shown my movies in, in several different times, and I would get good reactions, but it was very hard to get a wide distribution of it because, especially among experimental film places, because my films are not experimental in the traditional way of experimental films, especially in that time. And they're certainly not slick, so they're not commercially viable. So they kind of fall in between and and experimental films think it isn't, you know, off the wall enough or you know, abstract or, you know, abstruse or whatever. So I had a tough time getting a lot of showings. I was very fortunate to show my first movie at Film Forum in 1971, and just right after it opened up in the Upper West Side, Sandy Miller, then who founded Film Forum and has been a lifelong friend since then, um, showed it, and that really helped boost my spirits. I got a $25 check for it. <laughs> that was the first step. And then you could consider yourself a professional filmmaker. No, <laughs> but thank you for thinking of it that way. I mean, I made these movies. I made. I ended up making 13 movies from 1964, which was my first student movie, till 1976 when I made two short movies on women's liberation. So in those 12, 13 years, I made 13 movies, of which seven are done in this political kind of collage type style. And those to me are uh, certainly the most interesting. I made two short uh, color films. My only color films, a variation on a shot, 
same shot over and over, one at the ocean on Cape Cod and one on a pond at Cape Cod in different weathers and times of day and things. That was just kind of for fun. And I made a movie about Spanish refugees. My mother founded Spanish Refugee Aid, which is a committee helping refugees in the south of France. And I made that movie right after I was married in 65. And uh, then I made these three um, silent comedies at school. So a little bit of everything, but the ones that really, to me, are, are the most creative and uh, represent me more are those seven political movies I made. Well, I have to ask, why did you stop? Part of it was I was discouraged by my last two movies. My last two movies have actors in them while I have my friends in them. All the other movies have people's voices, but not people that you see walking around. And So because my main interest then and still now was was feature films and I, I wanted I wanted to try to make a feature movie and I thought well this might be a kind of halfway step to it to make the same kind of political essay film but with people and so I made these two short movies on women's liberation six minutes each but when I finished them they seemed so didactic and my friends aren't actors. I'm not a very good actor. I was in it. My wife was in it. It just seemed stiff and didactic, and I was I was very discouraged. And I thought, well, I could go back to making the other kind of movies, but I really wanted to go on and try to make a feature movie. So I, I wrote several scripts and, and spent pie in the sky kind of things because I really wasn't ready to make a feature movie. I mean, these movies I did on my own, and I tend to be more of a loner. I'm not that good with organizing people and interacting with people. And to make a feature movie would be a huge leap for me to do. So in trying to make that leap, which didn't work, that kept me fallow for all those years. So it was a little bit the discouragement. But now when I see those two movies, I'm still not very happy with one of them, but one of them I've, I've come to actually like. So that's been a, a good sign from this recent renaissance i've had a lot of some showings recently and so i've seen these movies a lot more now and i've i've come back to like that movie yeah tell me about this renaissance because i know you just had a screening over at union docks you've shown in uh chicago why this resurgence is it just that the is it the political tide has turned again to kind of similar times or are there other reasons why Nick McDonald is now kind of getting back out there. Well, it's funny because you mentioned finding me through Amos Vogel's uh, Palestine. A very similar thing happened to me a couple of years ago. Michael Phillips in Chicago. There are two Michael Phillips. One is a critic, and this is Michael Phillips who runs Southside Projections. He was doing a series well he was doing he was trying to find the movie Attica by Cinder Firestone and it was very hard to find it but in doing the research to find her which he eventually did he came across this film called Still Attica Remains by someone named Nick McDonald and he was intrigued anyway he kept searching around and then he read this book by Richard Porton called Anarchist in the Anarchist in the Film Imagination something like that and it's a book about anarchist films, and Richard very sweetly wrote a couple of pages about the liberal war. And so Michael Phillips, through him, then tracked me down, and then through the white pages, 
wrote me and said, oh, your movie sounds so interesting. I really want to have your showing out here and everything. So we corresponded, and then he set up the showing in December, last December, in Chicago. And we um, showed these, it's called the Nothing Too Small for a Revolution, the anarchist films of Mick McDonald, showed five movies. And... Um, and that was replicated at Union Docs a few days ago, uh, and he came from Chicago also to introduce it. And Noah Eisenberg, the film critic, also talked to me at that event. So that was like this guardian angel. And the thing that has also made it possible for me, and I know I'm going to be having some more showings, to be able to reach out and get my movie shown is that for many years, I didn't even think about my movies. They were just sitting around in my apartment. They weren't in a vault the way they should have been. But John Hanhart, who used to be at the Whitney and is now was at the Smithsonian as a Jan Noon Paik curator, who has been a big backer of mine, suggested to me that my movie should be archived. And I hadn't really thought that far. And I thought, well, that's fantastic because I never know what I'm going to do with these movies. What are my children going to do with them? So after a year, a year and a half, I, my number one choice was Museum of Modern Art because I had this connection. And they then finally accepted, well, finally they, they looked at my films, all of my films, and accepted all of my films for their archives. So at that point, I had to give them all my negatives, all my prints, so I kept one print of some of the movies, all the written material, posters, you know, brochures about my movies, my working scripts, everything went to them which they're now cataloging. But I had to make DVDs, finally, which I had been meaning to do for years. So I got fantastic DVDs of all my movies. So now I can send them out and say, you know, I want to have showings, basically. So now it's much, much easier to do that. So that's been the combination of the Museum of Modern Art and getting the DVDs. And Michael Phelps finding me has really kind of opened up this, this new area for me. How does it feel kind of going back and revisiting these films after 40 years? It was wonderful because when the museum, it was a long process, but the museum invited me and my wife into the screening as Charles Silver, who was a wonderful man. He was one of the curators at the Museum of Art, a sweet, sweet man. And he invited us to sit in the screen room with him. So over two days, I saw all 13 movies. It's four hours all together. And some of these movies, well, certainly my silent comedies I hadn't seen in at least 40 years. And some of the political movies I hadn't seen. The only ones I'd really seen a lot of was Breakout and the Liberal War. And... I was, well, I was embarrassed by the silent comedies, although I love seeing my friends and everybody in the age of 20. But the political movies actually worked much better than I thought. I'd always worried about my Palestine movie, that it was, I thought it was just too didactic and, and obvious, and, but it really worked. I really enjoyed it this time. It basically uses the metaphor of the United States, of the Indians being kicked off their lands, as the Arabs being kicked off civil rights, Martin Luther King. Um, so I use American images while I'm talking about, you know, the Wild West and colonization, while I'm talking about um, the situation. It's just basically a history of Israel from an Arab point of view. So that movie felt much better. My one on Attica, which I kind of liked, I, I really liked. I think there's a lot of passion and anger and 
So, and they, it works well with the other movies. So I was actually very, very pleased. But, and uh, one thing while we're watching these movies, the color movies, the prints came up. Everything was orange. Was, every shot was orange, basically. It was supposed to be variations with different colors. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, well, those are gone. That's because I didn't have it in a vault, you know. That's those, I'll never see those again. And Charles said, well, you know, hold on. You know, you don't know. Sometimes the negatives are fine. You can, the prints can often fade like that. So when I went to do art to get the DVDs made, lo and behold, the color was absolutely perfect and beautiful the way I remembered. So it was like being reborn. It's like two of my movies came back to life. It was like magical. So tell me about your relationship with Grand Illusion during these kind of intervening years before you actually started to write this book or decide to write this book about it. I mean, here you are, I would say, a very big fan of the film when you're a younger person. Did that help kind of color your style as a filmmaker, your love of film? And then kind of what was your relationship at, during that time in between? Well, it certainly it didn't affect how I made movies at all because, you know, I did this very specific way of making these documentaries. But it certainly it certainly instilled in me. It started me in my love of movies. And so, you know, I became a huge film buff when I went to Paris for my junior year abroad. I I spent every day at the Cinematheque, at both Cinematheques. I'd see two or three movies a, a day. And, um, you know, I just, became a huge film buff. I mean, all kinds of movies, film noir, westerns, Japanese. I mean, I suddenly discovered Ozu and all these, you know, I had a full musical education. It didn't affect how I made my movies, as I said, because that was just very technically practical, trying to spend as little money as possible and get these ideas across. Grand Illusion I saw many, many times and sometimes connected with my father, actually, sometimes not. But then um, 2000, I decided it actually was related. I, I play basketball regularly, and I, I love basketball. And it's, I used to play three times a week, and it just uh, it was kind of my real passion. But I realized, you know, I could blow up my knee and never play again. And I almost intellectually thought, well, I've got to have something that can replace that. And I said, well, you know, I've always loved this movie be fun to write something about it and that so it would kind of exercise a new muscle so i started down and i i'm a very obsessive person so i wrote i figured well i'll write down how many minutes i do a day to kind of spur me on and i started out 15 minutes and it was unbearable it took me 10 minutes just to kind of try to find i'd, I'd written this essay about it a 50-page essay I finally found it and looked at it, and then the, you know, five days later, I spent another 15 minutes. Anyway, it was like building up a physical muscle. It was building up this writing muscle, and I'd never written extensively. I've written. I do keep notes on all the movies I see, so every time I see a movie, I write up a little critique of it. So I've written a lot, but nothing published. So I gradually got deeper and deeper, and instead of a long article, I realized it was a book, and it got bigger and bigger, and so over 12 years, by the end, I was spending seven, eight hours a day writing, and was absolutely no problem. It was hard to stop, and you know, I just I was eager to get to my desk to work on it. And I went over the draft many, many, many times in order to improve it, and it took me. I finally found a publisher, McFarland, 
And I thought I had the the, ver- the version I wanted. I said I can submit it to you, but they had to. I had to get permissions for the photographs that I'd chosen. So I thought that well, that's not so hard. It took me two years to get the permissions, but that was very lucky because in those two years I must have done about three or four more drafts, and each draft was considerably better. And I began to realize I was not ready to submit this manuscript. So I then took as long as I wanted, and McFarland was great about it. They they didn't hold me to any deadline. And once I every, I do a draft, I let it sit for two or three months, and then I go back to it. When I finally went back to it, and there'd be maybe one change every ten pages, I said, "That's good enough. I don't, you know, that's I'm not going to get better than this." But you know, originally I was changing huge chunks. I was erasing stuff. I was adding in new ideas. But once I got to the stage where it was just a little bit here and there, I said, okay, now I can let it go. So I really worked hard on that book. And McFarland did a fabulous job of putting it together. The photographs came out beautifully, and they allowed me also to do a final error check, and they, the last version is now practically without any errors because the original version that came out had a number of typos. So they they, they treated me really, really well. You know, they're a small press. They do a lot of film books, but they don't do much publicity. So I haven't, it hasn't sold many copies, but I'm very happy with it. Those photographs are just amazing, especially to see some of those behind the scenes pictures. How on earth did you get your hands on those? Oh, yeah. Well, that was, I had no idea that there were any production stills of Grand Illusion, none, or even of Rules of the Game. I'd never seen them ever printed, ever. Now, maybe in France in some books, but certainly not. You know, I read all the books that had anything to do with Grand Illusion. And, well, there were one or two um, shots in the snow of Renoir filming that have been printed in other books. The way I found them, I found them at a place called the RMN Reunion Musée National, which is a huge repository of the cultural history of France. And in their archives, they have the Sam Levin. He was the still photographer. He was... He was mainly famous for having basically dis- um, discovered Brigitte Bardot, where he did the original photographs of Brigitte Bardot that made her so famous. Anyway, he was a he was a photographer both on Rules of the Game and on uh, Grand Illusion and on some old fools movies. And in their collection online, anybody can look at them. There are these incredible behind the scenes that you feel like you're you know, rabbit hole into history. You're back you're back on the set and you you see you see Renoir in the barn with Elsa and you think, oh my, you know, I mean, yes, of course he had to be there. I mean, you, you forget when you see a movie that the director is actually also there. It was just stunning to see these things. And there's a beautiful one for rules of the game when Renoir and and uh uh Cartier Bresson, who is a friend and who appears in the movie and some of the actors are sitting on a side of a river, wine and and cheese and baguettes, just taking a break from the movie. I mean, it's just staggering to see these little glimpses of life. Wasn't that expensive to get them? It would have been almost impossible if I'd gone through the museum, but um, uh, this, uh, what was the name of the art? Art Resource here in New York was their United, their United States affiliate for them, and they did all the basic negotiation of the contract and everything, and were able to get them for me. I really appreciate the approach that you take with the book and the way that you structure it. 
and that you start, I don't want to say at the end, but you kind of start almost near the end, you know, after they get out of uh, Wintersborn and then kind of showing that and then moving a little bit more through the story and then taking us uh, through the relationships of these characters and then working into uh, Renoir and his history and then going even past that. I just appreciate that you, you, I can't say that it's a fractured way of doing it because the way that you put it together just makes sense. Well, thank you. I'm really glad you, you saw that. I mean, that was terribly important. I mean, I think that's one of the things that makes it easier to read in a sense. I mean, it's, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of analysis of films technique because so much has been written about this movie, but very, very little about the actual cinematic qualities of the movie. It's, you know, treated as a great humanist document, anti-war and about anti-Semitism, about class distinctions and the acting is so wonderful and all this, which is absolutely true. But to me, what distinguishes it and makes it a true masterpiece, those would all be great. It would be a great movie. But what makes it a masterpiece is the actual cinematic technique and what happens as a movie. Why? why it's not a play, why it's not a novel, what makes it really a movie. And that's analyzing it in certain scenes and a lot of scenes shot by shot and why that is so expressive cinematically. So a lot, that's, that's a lot to read, especially since you're not necessarily visualizing the scenes. I mean, unless you've seen it a lot of times, so it's hard. You have to describe the scenes, you describe why this shot follows that and, why the angle is important or, you know, how long the shot is, why that's important. So it was important to me to have a structure which would relieve you every so often. So in between heavy analysis of scenes, there would be a discussion of the relationships or a discussion of uh, class and how that's worked out or, you know, so I I could alternate things to give the viewer, the viewer, well, the, the reader, some rest from the analysis. And then that's the first part. And then the second part, as you point out, I go into Renoir's life, which is fascinating, his his film career and how the film was received and the collaborators on the film. And and then an analysis of his next to last movie, The Elusive Corporal and Cape Raleigh, Banglai, in the World War II prison camps, which is so interesting as a prism through which to understand how great Grand Illusion is because it's to me it's one of his weakest movies and you can see by parallel situations how false and didactic and in your face and with no subtlety the later movie is uh, although you know a lot of critics think it's a masterpiece and even a lot of the French critics don't aren't crazy about Grand Illusion so you know, everyone has their own way of looking at movies. But anyway, that's how I chose that movie. And then I decided to also go into some film theory. So I've got I've got film analysis, I've got film history, and I have one chapter relating movies to music. And at, at its core, I believe that movies are really creative the way music is. It's an abstract, even though it's one of the least abstract arts, when it works cinematically, it works on an abstract level in terms of the length of a shot, which, like the length of a phrase in, in music, it has no meaning in itself, you know, the angles and things like that. 
And um, a, a number of philosophers have talked about music as being the, well, Walter Pater and Schopenhauer about how this is kind of the, well, Pater said that all art aspires to be music. And I understand what he means. That at that level, you have to get away from the literal and the underlying everything. There has to be something that is elusive, like in music. And so I, I, do, I have that chapter, too. Uh, Virginia Woolf wrote an incredible essay about cinema in 1924, I think it was, or 2024, I think it was, which is extraordinary because she she sees that very point. That she's not talking about experimental movies, but she realizes that movies can't just be obvious and tell you the story or just underline everything and have to leave something open for the for the viewer, basically. That obsessive attention to detail that you bring to this, especially with those shot lengths, is something that I really appreciate, especially when you kind of pull that into the text and talk about this has to be one of the most important shots of the film because it's one of the longest shots of the film and just comparing those things. And and then you're also, and I, I think some of your, your filmmaking background does play into it because you talk so much about the way that the camera is, the way that it moves into this, and just really pointing out some of those things that I might not have noticed otherwise you really bring attention to some of these details that bring out so much of the art of what Renoir was doing. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned, well, as an example, you know, it was the longest shot, so it's an important. It's interesting because most of the long shots are critically important, but and this is how Renoir is so wonderful because you just can't ever pigeonhole them because the actually the longest shot in the movie is one of the least important movies. It's totally just it's part of the adventure thing of of uh, the the cabaret actor going down into the hole to dig a tunnel and tunnel uh, dig in the tunnel, and it's it's a beautifully long choreograph, so it's very beautiful. But in terms of the themes and in terms of the intensity of the movie, it's 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 simply like any other adventure movie. So that actually is a longer shot, but the other long shots invariably have incredible twists and turns where everything changes within the shot, which is so beautiful. I'm curious how your relationship with the film changed over time when you are, you know, you go from, I wouldn't say that you're a casual viewer of this film. You were definitely a fan of this film and you saw it many times over the years, but here you are timing out shots and watching this, I would probably say obsessively. How do you now look at Grand Illusion? Well, it's obviously a totally different experience now. I mean, I will find myself, you know, looking at, you know, the upper right-hand corner just, you know, for a few shots and see if I miss something there. And, you know, I, I really haven't found new things very much where I will listen to the background noises or the, or the way the music goes in and out. All I do talk about the music in the book. But to me, I mean, it's I just go, and of course I know, Every split second, so I know exactly. I can anticipate everything. So it's it's a wonderful experience of anticipation. I mean, I just I see where it's leading into the next shot and when it's going to get cut, and I just enjoy that. And I still am moved by it. I mean, it's it's extraordinary. I mean, it's, uh, I've seen it almost thirty times in theaters, and at least another sixty, oh, who knows, ninety times on the DVD, going over and over and over. 
it does not lose its freshness. It's, I mean, it's, I mean, it's obviously a test of a great movie, and uh, I'm sure that's true of Rules of the Game. If I saw that, or Citizen Kane, or movies like that, they would not lose their freshness. How was uh, Grand Illusion initially received, and how did that reception change over time? Well, it's one of the few movies that Renoir made that was successful immediately. Critics loved it. Audiences loved it. It was a success. Most of his movies were failures. Most of his movies were criticized. The Rules of the Game was a terrible failure. It was all cut apart and and condemned and being pessimistic on the eve of World War II, which in a way is, is I think, part of the reason why the French New Wave critics are very dismissive of Grand Illusion, because it's it's not an enfant terrible. It's, it's popular. And so Truffaut especially says Blacks the poetry of rules of the game, and and it's all psychology. And I very much disagree with that because I think he misses the poetry. He misses the poetry and the and the cinematic brilliance of this movie. That's the poetry, and you would think he would have seen that, or but it was almost he willingly had to put it down. And uh, and as far as psychology, if you look at rules of the game, those characters actually talk a lot about their psychology and what they're feeling and stuff. Grand Illusion, there's very, very little of that. People do not let on to what they're thinking or feeling. You have to deduce that, and that's one of the reasons that makes it such a great movie. Now, Rules of the Game is great in a very, very different way, and I couldn't choose between the two movies. They're both so so beautiful. So, I mean, it, it had mixed reactions, and then after the war, it was condemned by... Um, many critics as being too soft on the Germans and it was then butchered when it was released in 1946 and you know complaints they took out stuff about the Germans and even the embrace of the German woman and the French soldier and and it was only reconstructed in 1958 by Renoir and Spock his co-scenarist they got the I forget if they had the rights I'm not remembering this now but they Anyway, I think they probably did get the rights back from the defunct um, production company. And they cobbled together from several prints, and they reconstructed it. And then it was a huge success again, and that's really what put it on this map. And then the next year, in 59, Rules of the Game, similarly was reconstructed and was a huge success. So both movies had this revival in the end of the 50s. And uh, to this day, are just kind of um, you know these these iconic movies, but they both got totally butchered and uh, for different reasons. But Grand Illusion was always always very popular whenever it was shown, so which was unusual, as I said, for Renoir. The name of the book is In Search of La Grand Illusion: A Critical Appreciation of Jean Renoir's Elusive Masterpiece. Why elusive? I didn't really want a subtitle at all. It just seemed too much of a mouthful. But McFarlane wanted something to describe what the movie, what the book was really about. So I said, okay, I'll just, you know, we'll do that. But um, they had, um, I forget, I forget what their adjective was now. But they had another adjective, and I wanted to express the elusiveness of movies at this abstract core like music that you cannot codify why something is a great scene you can try i try in this book but in a way i I also admit that you can't really certify that something is great someone might respond to it someone might not 
So the elusive quality of movies or of any art form, and even though movies are on the surface a totally unabstract form, it has at, at its core, at the length of the shot and the angles of the things, how the scenes are put together, this elusive quality which affects one or does not affect one according to one's own experiences and one's own body rhythms. Who knows how movies affect people or not? So, and of course, there is the elusive corporal, although I don't think it's a good movie. It's kind of associated with Renoir, so I chose that as the adjective. Well, I have to say it is a terrific book, and I love that it's both a, a, a close reading of it and then also looks at so many of these themes. And it's it's amazing to me to think that anyone, especially Truffaut, wouldn't appreciate what he was trying to do with it. I guess I can understand that whole, like, kill your idols kind of thing and just trying to separate from the past. But it's just uh, remarkable that the new wave didn't embrace him more as one of their own. Oh, no, no, no. I didn't mean to apply that. They, Renoir was a god to them. Absolutely. It's just this one movie. No, no, no. They, they appreciated the movies that I don't like at all, like French Can Can and I mean, and the American movies, I think, are great masterpieces, and most of them, I think, are terrible. So, no, this is this is the only movie that they really shortchange, and I think it's I think it's this embarrassment that it was popular. If it's popular, it means people get it too quickly. And my theory is that the the new wave, the intellectuals, Godard, and all those people wanted to be like the high priest of you know culture and so they could embrace rules of the game which everyone hated and rightfully so they defended it but what can they do with grand illusion if everyone loves it they can't explain it to them they can't say well you you made a mistake it's to me it's a very kind of perverse uh well enfant terrible it's like tweaking your nose you know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna like that just because you like it I, I think that's what it is it's i, I think that's really what it is basically Renoir was basically Truffaut's surrogate father. I mean, they were, I mean, he he worked with Renoir and and looked up to him. And oh no, all all the new wave loved Renoir. So, I mean, they loved him more than I do. I, I find most of Renoir's movies are are not very good, and I say that in the book. So I'm not I'm not in agreement with most critics. Most critics see him as this kind of iconic figure who could do no wrong, and I I very disagree with it. Movies are a very hard medium to control. It takes every, all the different collaborators to work together, and it all comes together. The same. Renoir could be very melodramatic and obvious and not at all subtle the way he is in his great movies. I'm curious, what's next for you? What's next for uh, Nick McDonald? Well, uh, I have some film books I would love to do, but right now my main project is to go back to a book that I started about 40 years ago. And, uh, which is a three-part book, and the bulk of it is basically memoir, but it's written as if it's as the character is Nick. It's written like it's a novel, but it really is memoir. It's just everything from my letters and everything I can remember. So it's a documentary of my life, and then interspersed would be chapters from the point of view of my mother and my father and my brother, all of who have died. And that would be written in the first person from their point of view. And I'll try to put myself into their, I'm going to go through their papers and get a sense of their feelings. And so that'll be their take on the same kind of things I'm talking about. But that'll all be novel, even though it says I. 
And then the last strand, which is the least important of chapters, will be essays written by this main character, Nick, of things that have been important in my life, like when I when I read Proust and Proust's uh, book, which has made a huge effect on me, uh, Putney School, where I went to for high school, um, basketball, which has been important to me, anarchism, um, when I discovered that. Um, certainly movies, um, the psychotherapist Alice Miller, because I went into therapy, my therapist gave me her book, uh, The Drama of the Gifted Child, and it made a huge impact on me. So a discussion of Alice Miller. All these kinds of things will be um, written as essays, short essays, which will punctuate, punctuate these other chapters. And then it, I never could figure out how this was going to end, but when my brother died nine years ago, I went through his apartment. He was a hoarder, and I learned a lot. I could see a lot of similarities to me and his obsessions. I'm very obsessive. And even though we didn't have a close relationship, it made me feel much closer to him. You know, I realized that this is this is how it's going to end. I'm learning about myself. I'm learning to make peace with my brother and similarly hope to make peace with some of the, I mean, I, our family was, I was never at odds with my parents, but it wasn't a close family, but to understand them more. So through writing this book and through going through my brother's apartment, uh, meanwhile, I'm still playing basketball, so that will kind of be the thread that will run through that as well. That will be the, the last chapter will be this going through this apartment of my brother right after he dies. Um, so anyway, that's the book I really... I really want to concentrate on now uh, that I'm kind of, I'll still keep pushing my movies and I'll still try to push my book, but, uh, and then I hope to write some other books about movies from the same, same point of view. I really do want to impress upon people that if they are available, if they can make it to one of your screenings, I really stress that they should, because it is amazing just the cyclical nature of history and that so many of the things that you bring up in these movies that you made in the early 70s are just as important today as they were back then. No, thank you for saying that. I think it's totally, yeah, totally true. It's, it's yes, it's very sad. But yeah, I mean, my Vietnam movie, every each Iraq war, I, I suddenly got showings again at the Whitney and also at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. They had a thing on Vietnam, Vietnam, Hollywood, to Hanoi. And they showed my movie. I appeared with a the movie there because it was so relevant to the, the second Iraq war. So, you know, it, it it goes in these cycles. Yeah. Well, hey, thank you again. And thanks for taking the time to talk to me a second time. I appreciate well, it. Well, thank you so much. Really, Mike. Appreciate it. C'était un peu petit navire qui n'avait ja, ja, jamais navigué, qui n'avait ja, ja, jamais navigué. Ah oui, ah oui. All right, we are back and we're talking about La Grande Illusion. When I was in film school, kind of what you're talking about, Tom, as far as the Renoir's films being taught, and uh, apparently it's kind of like. Well, uh, like another person that I brought up earlier, Orson Welles, that Renoir's films weren't always as appreciated as they might have been. I know when I was going to school, like 
rules of the game was the film that you would teach and uh grand illusion is held in this high regard but apparently it wasn't always so it wasn't that that his films were held in this esteem that they are now i mean you mentioned earlier grand illusion was criterion i think criterion number one or something <laughs> i actually have the laser disc the laser disc was spy number number one these movies were not as lauded as they are now uh it's just amazing how uh kind uh time and other filmmakers and and critics have been to these movies you know even before we started recording talking about how you know that there is definitely a uh, deluge of uh materials out there to read about renoir and about his films whereas at a time he was just kind of written off the grand illusion itself the way this film has been received over years, upon its release in 1937, it was a massive success. People absolutely loved it. It was obviously kidnapped by the Nazis, reappeared in 1946, and people hated it because I think it was so sympathetic towards the Germans, and then kind of disappeared and then reappeared in the 1950s. And this was, I think the 50s were a crucial period in the history of film criticism, because people were like, no, 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 it's The Grand Illusion is his greatest film. Citizen Kane is Wells' greatest film. And then that actually people came out and went, no, actually, no, no, the greatest awesome Wells film is Mr. Arkadin. How dare you say Citizen Kane is the best film, is his best film. It's clearly Mr. Arkadin. Stop, stop talking. And when Ra kind of suffered this as well, because people were like, well, this is his best film. No, no, it's The Rules of the Game is his best film. That's clearly his best film. It's the most personal film, blah de blah The other issue was he had what I think a lot of critics at the time didn't like was his American phase, where basically he went over to Hollywood and started making um, films like Swamp Water. And um, I think the other one was, I think, what have I seen? Is it This Land? Is it the Land is Mine, I think, where he was making, yeah, where he was making films in America. And I think that kind of tarnished his reputation amongst a few of the more sniffy critics and when he kind of got back to making like um the river and the golden coach and french cancan i think that was when he kind of this reappraisal began to take place of his work and by this time i think that kind of in, in terms of kind of like auteurist criticism would come into play and the rules of the game was the film and i think the grand illusion came back into fashion in the 80s and the 90s i look at his films i think they're all brilliant for the most part I and mean, there's a few oddities in there but I mean, even the fact that um, Tony, I don't know if you've ever seen that. I've seen Tony. I love it. It's yeah. Ita- Italian neorealism before well, Italian I mean, neorealism. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of the, 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 the benchmarks of those films. So, I mean, his place in film history to me, I mean, I, I've always just kind of like gone on the assumption that he's this incredible filmmaker and, you know, I, I love his films. But the idea that perhaps there could have been this kind of sniffiness to his work, I, I kind of find slightly ridiculous. I got to tell you, my favorite Renoir film is The Crime of Monsieur Lang. And after that day in the country, I just absolutely love both those movies so much. Oh, sorry, now I've just recently watched the Criterion, you know, um, The Bitch, The Shen, that one. Um, that's absolutely brilliant, that film. I think that actually at the moment is possibly my favorite film of his as well. So. Well, the 30s, the 30s were his decade. I think he made 15 films from 1931 to 1939. So it was his most prolific. He was on at, during that period of time. He made seven of those movies can reasonably be called great. 
it was his artistic high point. Yeah, I need to catch up with more of his stuff. Uh, I was amazed. I didn't seem to realize that Jack Becker was his uh, assistant on on the film, and uh, it played a major role in a lot of Renoir films. And then Becker would go on in his own right to be a, a amazing director, and he would go on to work with uh, Jean Gabin again with uh, and and forgive my pronunciation, Touche Pas à Grisby, uh, which. A lot of people just call it Grisby. Great, great movie. And that is Hands one of those. Hands off I the mean, loot, yeah. Oh, when you see, I mean, Jean Gabin is, is just mesmerizing in La Grande Illusion. He's, but he's one of many, many amazing actors inside of that film. When you see him in stuff like Grisby or Pepe de Moco, I mean, he just, he just burns up the screen, man. He is amazing in those movies. And you can see why. I mean, I think somebody said earlier, like, Gabin is the one who really helped the Grand Illusion get made. It was through his star power. Once he got on uh, involved in the film, then it was greenlit. Otherwise, it was just like, yeah, we're not really so sure. And then when he was on there, he was the matinee idol at the time. And it was like, okay, yeah, whatever Gabi wants to do, no problem. And he, luckily, he, even though he is the protagonist of Grand Illusion, he takes a back seat a lot of times. And I really appreciate that he knows when to step out of that spotlight. He is not, definitely not mugging for the camera at any point. And there are, are amazing, powerful moments inside of the film that he carries pretty much on his own shoulders. I mean, we talked about him in the uh, in Solitary Confinement. That's a, an amazing scene. But he is part of an ensemble in that in grand illusion and he knows when to step up and when to let the rest of the actors go and to me that is the the really how you know what a great actor is is when they know when to let the other actors just breathe and do their thing it's a great cast one of the characters early in the film who doesn't show up in the second half of the film is gaston modo who had been in uh, Bunuel's Lage Dior, and he had oh, he would also go on to be in Rules of the Game as well, and he is just so good. He's the guy who washes Marichal's feet during that sequence there, and he's almost kind of like uh, John Cleese, like if you will, a mustache, yeah, <laughs> uh, mustache tall guy, but he has that same kind of grace and charm that. Uh, Gabin has. And you also had Marcel Dalio, who was instrumental in uh, Rules of the Game. And also, by the way, another conduit to Casablanca, because he played the croupier in Casablanca. Here's your winnings, Monsieur Rick. That guy. Shocked. Shocked. <laughs> There's gambling going. <laughs> and then, he, yeah, then it's Dalio who comes in and says, here's your winnings. So, 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 and he had a long career. He was in America. He was into have and have not. And he played uh, Rosenthal. So, I mean, the other interesting thing about him was that um, the Germans actually took stills from the Grand Luge and used them on posters as to how identified Jews. I mean, I mean, that's, you know, that's <laughs> when we talk about anti-Semitism, he literally became the poster boy for anti-Semitism in a kind of crazy way. And Dita Parla, who plays Elsa, was in one of my very favorite French films of all time, uh, uh, Lantala. La Antala, La Atlanta, yeah, the Jean Vigo film, and which is another great, great, great French film. She originally, uh, going back to Orson Welles, 
he wanted her to play Kurtz's wife uh, if he had ever made uh, that Heart of Darkness, yeah. Of Heart of Darkness, yeah. That would have been amazing. She has this just grace about her and this earthy beauty uh, in the film that it just, when you look at her, you almost want to weep at just how gorgeous she is. And she's not made up. She's very, very plain in this film, but you just know that she, she just carries herself with such grace. Just amazing, amazing stuff. Going back to the Nazis, from what I understand, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that we actually have the Nazis to thank for the nitrate print of this film that by Goebbels seizing this and keeping it, he didn't burn it, he kept it in the archives that one of the best looking prints of Grand Illusion that is out there is the one that the Nazis took. That Again, that could be apocryphal. I'm not sure if that's true or not. It's a fascinating <laughs> story, yeah. It involves uh, oh, the director of the Cinematique, Cinematique Francais, Langlois, uh, was friends with uh, this, this uh, Mike, you, if you have more details, but it's a fascinating story. The Germans actually took the, the original print back to Berlin. And then from what I understand, I think there were other, there was another print from, from a South American archive that they managed to kind of merge the two to, to make the version that's available today. But what I don't understand, if this was public enemy film number one, why, why didn't they just burn the print? Did they secretly watch it and go, do you know what? This is brilliant. And we don't want to get rid of it. I, I don't, I can't work out why if it was so alarming to them, why didn't you burn it at the time? It seems kind of, I mean, obviously it's done kind of cinema a favor, but it, the story behind what happened seems almost a, a it seems almost a film within itself. Well, that whole idea of the quote-unquote degenerate art that was, you know, seized uh, after the Weimar Republic was taken over by the the Nazis. I mean, I, I think that we have, uh, you know, a, a lot of that stuff survived because it was seized and because it was stored rather than being burned. It doesn't make any sense to me. It seems like that would be. I mean, it, we live in a world now where you know the Taliban is blowing up Buddhas in Afghanistan and these just amazing works of art and pieces of history. It seems like that's the ultimate way to get rid of them rather than seizing them and storing them someplace. But I'm so glad that they did. I'm so glad that those things survived. It could have been an, uh, an investment strategy by the Nazis because they were probably maybe selling some of the stuff near the end of the war to help pay for the war effort. I've also heard it actually ended up back in Russia as well. I think it actually might have ended up in, back in Moscow. So I think the... the, I think the from what I've always been led to believe, I think the Russians actually captured um, the warehouse where a lot of the, the Nazis had stored a lot of their loot from the occupied territories. And they just bunged it on trains and sent it back to Moscow. And then in the 60s, they started actually cataloging all this stuff and actually working out what they had. And apparently, I, I don't know if it's true or not, but I've heard a kind of a rumor that I think the Grand Legion was something they actually kind of found whilst going through all this loot and, and shipped it back to the French and, and like, well, there you go, you know, have, have, have your film back. But, yeah, I mean, um, I, 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 I'd like to think that they watched it and thought, do you know what, this film's actually brilliant and I can't bring myself to burn it, which <laughs> just, I don't like to say, like I was saying, it, it seems madness that they wouldn't have, if they were so offended by it. I, I heard a story that Langlois had a friend who was a German doctor or a, librarian or something who had archives and that that 
person knew of some of these films, but he was also an incredible film buff so that he was putting some French films aside and away somewhere. And he was very good friends with Lang Loy. And that's what I heard he had in, but I also heard the story about the film being found in some place in Munich. Uh, so I'm not really 100% sure. I think these, whether there was two separate incidents or I'm not quite sure. It's a happy accident that it actually came together for sure. Um, that we kind of get the print out because I mean, the Blu-ray I've got of the film looks absolutely incredible. I mean, I mean, I, I mean, even the first, even as the first Criterion DVD, it still holds up. Um, you know, it, it still looks pretty great. But I mean, the, the Studio Canal who um, did the restoration on the Blu-ray, I think, have done an incredible job on what you've got. I mean, it looks absolutely flawless. The, the version I've got, for, anyway. The person that you're talking about, I'm wondering if it's this guy uh, Frank Hensel, who uh, yes, I know I, that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I read that last night. As a matter of fact. I need to uh, look up more about this guy because, yeah, this it does sound like a film unto itself. You know, the, I mean, I, I understand there was Monuments Men, but it really didn't appeal to me as much as something like this. You know, that that this seems more like the uh, almost like a heist film in the making. <laughs> you know? It just seems it just it just seems does it not seem utterly ludicrous? You know, this film's dangerous and hideous. Uh, well, what's the best thing we can do with it? I know we'll we'll box it up and ship it back somewhere. That'll That'll, that that'll that'll solve this problem, you know. Right into the Reich Film Archive, yeah. yeah it's <laughs> unbelievable. Mike, you mentioned Orson Welles, and who's I'm a enormous fan of. He said that the people from his generation, the filmmakers from his generation and earlier, were all brought up not on films, but they were brought up on painting, literature, sculpture, theater, music, all of the arts. They they were really well versed in all of the artistic disciplines, and that the people that he when he was making this comment, he was talking pretty much about the movie brat generation, and they had everything that they had learned. They learned from movies, but the earlier generation had learned from all the various different arts. And since Renoir started make started in the film industry, I believe in the early twenties. That would probably no doubt apply to him and, of course, his father and the relationships his father had. And he 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 was playing on the ground in their house in Paris and Montmartre with, you know, people like Cezanne around and, and Stravinsky and all kinds of various different people who was in their household. And it's just something I, I, I find interesting because we didn't talk. We haven't spoken about that. The sense in the film of theater, for example. The composition, which Renoir had a tremendous eye for composition, and so you can imagine he inherited that from some of the art that he was familiar with. The emphasis on music. Uh, the film is kind of a cultural uh, smorgasbord of, of really good taste as well as it, its its humanistic message. We had a uh, a painting or a reproduction i should say of um uh, pierre august's um two sisters uh in our house growing up so uh, seeing that every single day and and to realize when i first saw a renoir film in uh college and i was just like 
Renoir, you mean the painter made this? And I didn't realize that you know it was his son, but I was just like, wow, what an amazing tradition to have the son of this painter now pick up the new medium and and go on with that. I mean, yeah, it's just uh, and to think that you know that that Pierre Auguste Renoir was a contemporary of all of these other uh impressionists and everything just yeah just uh i can't imagine the upbringing that uh th- that renoir the director must have had you know just uh and all the appreciation but yeah there is a real appreciation especially for theater and i love those theatrical scenes i love the uh the car that the one guy is getting out of that he's driving across the stage and, and tripping to get out of it. Just, yeah, there's so many amazing moments of theatricality in this. And then I would say the use of the framing. I mean, the frames in this film, I've talked about the doorways earlier and the use of windows in this movie. I mean, get out of town. There are so many amazing window shots where the camera's either starting out in the courtyard and coming back through or the reverse of that going out the window and that scene that we talked about where they talk about the the soldiers playing children and the children playing soldiers that framing we don't see the soldiers we just hear the soldiers and just them framed in the window and the way that the camera moves across their faces and one of the because there, there aren't a lot of close-ups in this film there but that moment where we just track across the guy's faces Oh man, that is telling. That is just uh, one of my favorite visual moments in the film. Well, I think the thing about Renoir as well was um, he, he isn't someone who he, he doesn't stick to kind of shot reverse shot structures. Um, he lets the camera kind of go in and out of the scene, and um, it, it's interesting because you know, just talk about who his father was and uh, and whatnot to kind of like just dial it back a little bit because he was kind of his his father set him up for life basically. Uh, when he died, they, he was left a lot of money. He was you know, quite privileged in that respect. And he was like, well, I'm going to give filmmaking a go. And I think a lot of people from everything I've read were kind of like quite sniffy about him, which was like he was this kind of rich kid who's just decided he's going to start making films. And that's all well and good. But what what I kind of like, I really love about him is the fact that he makes such brilliant films. This isn't just some rich boy deciding he's going to go off and make some crappy films and, you know, he, he's doing it because he can. He's making films because he is a genuine artist. He is a really, really talented director who has a really interesting style of making films. And um, in The Grand Illusion, it's the amount of actual shots in that film compared to, with films at the time is, is so much, there's, there's so much fewer in the way he kind of like, he moves the camera in and out and he, he plays around with the depth. Like there's a tremendous depth to the image with characters coming in through doors with characters in the foreground and he'll kind of like, um, pull the focus from someone in the foreground to the background. And, I've always kind of, I love the fact that he's kind of like, almost kind of gives a two fingers to everyone who sort of says, well, this is just some rich guy who's making films because he can. In his own right, he's a genuinely brilliant artist. He was of an aristocratic class, but his films were primarily centered around the proletariat, which is a very interesting aspect of, of his career. I think one of the things was that he, he was very much involved with the Popular Front movement in France, which was kind of set up as a kind of, it was, a, it was set up as a reaction against fascism and what they could see happening. 
But there's always that thing, isn't it? It's like, I mean, one of my favorite artists ever is uh, Bruce Springsteen, and people always kind of, I've, I've always have debates about him because people go, oh, he's always singing about the working class and blue collar America, and he's this multi millionaire. It's like, well, just because he is that, it doesn't mean he doesn't have empathy. It doesn't mean he, 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 he doesn't, just because he's a multi millionaire, it doesn't mean he doesn't know what it must be like to lose your job. And can can write convincingly about that, and I sort of think that's what's happening with Renoir. I, I, just because he's from privilege, and just because he's had, you know, the financial safety net that's been put down by his father, that doesn't mean he shouldn't be involved in leftist politics, um, especially in France with what was going on at the time. And um, it, it, it always seems such a redundant argument when you talk about artists that that kind of position. Of well, you know, how can someone possibly make convincing art about something when they don't know anything about it? I, I, I think it's nonsense in a way. Lucino Visconti was in some ways similar, and he was an assistant director on Tony, by the way. Uh, there's other examples of rich people <laughs> who have that uh, an empathetic point of view. Well, yeah, I mean, you could say that Orson Welles came from money as well. And I, I think that, uh, you know, he skewers the upper class when it comes to so many of his things, but especially Citizen Kane by showing the way that, you know, power and money can corrupt a person and that it's him playing Kane, you know, is a, is a great thing. He could be the megalomaniac, but instead he's playing the megalomaniac. Well, he knew it from the inside out. Renoir is a, a unique character because not, he wasn't, didn't just chronicle history in, in, or society in uh, Grand Illusion and Rules of the Game, but he was an actor in history. I mean, the son of uh, Pierre-Auguste Renoir, injured in battle in World War One, part of the uh, uh, Parisian society, uh, high society in uh, the 20s, discovered by, rediscovered by the French New Wave in the 60s. He was an actor in history. The Andre Bazan book about him, it gets to the American phase, and he's like, he's, he's, he writes like essays on his pre-American stage, and then there's something I can't remember what the line was, but it was something like his American films are so bourgeois, they're so bourgeois, and it's like, oh come on, what are you talking about? Do you know what I mean? Like, for, for who are you actually writing? You know, they're so fake. You know, it's, it's, it's this kind of like totally dismissive attitude of him during those phases and it actually kind of made me laugh because he writes these kind of huge essays about his American films and at the last paragraph it's like yeah basically these films are pretty still pretty good though yeah, you still can still go and watch them. Yeah, they're they're still more than they're still more than uh, capable but uh, yeah I'm just gonna just obviously kind of deride them for a little bit because I can. I think the the French New Wave responded to Renoir because his films were centered around the proletariat and also he shot on he shot on location used natural sound on set and uh, wrote screenplays and didn't do too many literary adaptations that was one of the things they were really pissed off about as much as anything else was uh these literary cinema of quality or whatever it was called in France it was usually based around these epic uh literary adaptations and Renoir's films were not they were epic in their own way, but they weren't epic in that way. That may have been one of the things that appealed about him to the French New Wave critics. And I mean, the Grand Illusion. It feels like a very personal film as well. I mean, the genesis of it is he was he was actually shooting Tony and kept getting interrupted by uh, 
some planes taking off from a nearby airfield. And then when he went over there, he actually found that the people who were flying around were actually former comrades, as it were, and the kind of the genesis of the Grand Illusion took place from that. And even the um, the technical advisor in the film was a chap called Carl Cock, who it transpired was a uh, a gunner who a, a German gunner who was based in Reims, and they actually worked out that Renoir would have been flying over his position during the war. And I think one of the things that um, the kind of the critics of the new wave appreciated was that there was so much of himself in his films that they weren't fake. They were actually made from a place of kind of like empathy in the world that he knew. And that was something that they most certainly reacted to. Well, a couple examples in Grand Illusion of personal artifacts is uh, Gavin wears Renoir's flying jacket, apparently. Of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And... and and in the theatrical scene, the uh, vaudevillian sings a song, which the name Marguerite is uh, refrained several times. And Marguerite was the name of his partner at that time, who was also the editor of the film. So it's probably more or less a reference to her. Yeah, it's interesting because there's Marguerite and then there was Maxime, the, uh, the, the restaurant, which comes back a couple times throughout the film. Yeah, they, they talk about this restaurant quite a bit, don't they? I mean, it's kind of like a, but again, it's one of those, um, it, it's one of them, yeah, I, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that that restaurant exists in the real world and it's, you know, it's, it's come from a place. Yeah. And I'll be in Paris for five days. I might have to check it out. You have to take pictures and send them back. See if there's that empty table oh, where uh, <laughs> Rosenthal and I'm, I'm, I'm so glad. I'm, I'm so glad they didn't go with that ending because I think that would po- possibly destroy me. No, really. Seriously, if they would have altered that ending, I, I think the ending is perfect. Uh, leaving that ambiguity, leaving those questions up in the air, and letting people uh, think about it. There, there are so many amazing shots in this film. But especially, we started off with the black of the record, and then flip it to the white of the snow. And just those, they're not dots necessarily, but it's a pretty far shot away of those guys. Probably one of the longest shots that we have in the film. And one thing I found, and probably it goes back to the humanism, is these German soldiers at the end of the film... They could have, if they really wanted to, they really could have shot these guys. Because how are they oh, going to yeah. know whether they're in uh, Switzerland or Germany? Well, they, don't they say something like they're better off or something like that? Yeah. Good, good for them or something. Right. And yeah. it's nice it ends in German. The, the last language we hear is German. Giving these guys the literally the last word of the film. It's the fact that then, you know, there's no reason for them not to shoot... But yeah, you know, they they just kind of like, oh well, you know, fair play to them. Off we go. And it's how nonchalant they are as well. They just kind of like stop stop shooting. Ah, okay, guys, off we go. And it, you're sort of thinking, well, why were you even shooting in the first place? Well, you the know? soldiers are probably wondering the same thing themselves, or some of them at least were probably wondering, what? Why are we doing this? All right, guys, we're going to take another break and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. <laughs> Shoes, daringly original musical that captures all the glamour of the south of France in exquisite technicolor, blending compelling beauty and high drama with a love story of sheer enchantment. 
assembling a cast of international stars to endow an enthralling film with their rich vitality. And making the outstanding debut of this or any other year, a lovely red-headed girl graced with all the talents, Moira Shearer. There would be no room in my life for anything but dancing. You will think so again, my dear. You're jealous of her. Yes, I am. But in the way that you will never understand. Well, Vicky? Julian, I love you. But you love that more. We'll be back next week with the discussion of the red shoes. Before we go, I want to thank this week's co-host, Ken and Tom. So, Ken, what has been keeping you busy lately other than uh, planning for your big trip? Well, actually, uh, my band is back in the studio, so we're back to that. And I'm also collaborating with someone around here on an art project that will be up and going at some point in this year. And then, of course, I'm going to Europe for a couple weeks in the middle of April. Things are picking up a little bit. <laughs> and how about you, Tom? Now, I know you are busy with the world of podcasting. How's all that going? Yes, very well. Um, you can find me on my own podcast, which is 24framescast.blogspot.com. I'm also on the Masters of Cinema cast. We're on Masters of Cinema cast. Um, sorry, mocast.blogspot.com. That's also on the Criterion um, cast feed as well. So, yeah, there's plenty more going on there. Well, I will be sure to link to that, uh, both of those, when this episode goes up. So thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. This was uh, really tremendous. I had a great time talking about this movie with you. No, thank you very much, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thanks, Mike. So please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and over to our Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. So every donation and every rating helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.